0: You i know, you made forty here, so you may have noticed a bit of a difference between the way people who go to college talk talk about race and uh, the way the elite uh, talk about race and the way that uh, Regular blokes talk about race. So here is the subway terrorist This is this is an example of
1: populist. Uh, yeah, fuck you too. Discourse. You see that shit all day every day Wow. You know, you see that shit all day every day White motherfucker gonna slam the door, like, you know, try to slam, I slam it in my face. Yeah, fuck you and your white ass too, you white, mother racist motherfucker.
0: Whoa, disavow. They
1: had to put that in for good luck. Brother I don't get, racial, listen. Yeah, them. white, racist motherfuckers, yeah, they do exist. Oh. They do fucking exist. Look at me, motherfucker, and they hate your guts too. Slam I fucking piece of shit. All that shit you do in Vietnam, they're they, they not your fucking friend. They ain't your fucking friend, nigga. That disavow. You're something less than human to them. You better get that in your fucking thick skull. Oh, I ain't I not black. I this callous, see? Motherfucker. Stinking bitch. Oh, war. Hey, man. Great idea. That's the best idea a fucking stinking spick could ever have. Let's kill each other. Prove what to you. Motherfucker, you shouldn't even exist prove what to you. you, shouldn't even be the fuck on earth, you're a crime against fucking nation, you Spanish speaking motherfucker, the, the, the fucking Spanish fucked you and raped you into existence, what are Whoa. you talking about, that goes to the fucking monkey ass motherfucking nigga too, talking that Whoa. fucking shit,
0: Disavow, build man. a nation,
1: another fucking nation, Islam. I'm talking about a nation, a standalone nation motherfucker, you a man, you a fucking failure, as a fucking stinking human being, what the fucking and wetback motherfucker, who had to pill on a white Whoa. man for everything, white man didn't feed you, you starved to death, Disavow. fuck you, that fuck I got two what to you make you fucking drop dead
0: wow wow disavow here's some more populist discourse on, on race
2: good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight during the morning rush hour yesterday in New York City a man wearing a hoodie threw a smoke bomb in a subway train pulled out a gun and then shot 10 people in the end dozens were injured a horrifying crime police have finally arrested the suspect they did so today we're learning a lot more about him but first we want to go to New York tonight for a quick update on this story Eric Sean is standing by for us. Eric?
3: Hey, Eric. Well, Tucker, tonight, this is a city relieved. Mayor Eric Adams and police simply saying, we got him.
4: Moments ago, Frank Robert James was stopped on the street and arrested by members of the New York City Police yeah, Department. Yeah, because
3: he called Crime Stoppers Officers, on himself.
4: In response to a Crime Stoppers tip, stopped Mr. James yeah, at 1- 1.42 from p.m. Him. at the corner of St. Mark's Place and First Avenue in Manhattan. He called it in. He was taken into custody without incident and has been transported to an NYPD facility. He will be charged with committing yesterday's appalling crime in Brooklyn. His arrest history
5: in New York is nine prior arrests, dating from 1992 to
0: 1998. Why was Those he
5: include out? possession of burglary tools four times, criminal sex act, theft of service two times. He was arrested on a New Jersey warrant. He also has a criminal tampering. He has three arrests in New Jersey, 1991, 1992, and 2007. They are for trespass, larceny, and disorderly conduct.
3: 62-year-old Frank James was arrested after a phone call to the tip-line Crime Stoppers. Two New York City police officers spotted James and put him in handcuffs as he stood on the street in Manhattan's Lower East Side in the East Village. Officers respond to the McDonald's. He's not in the McDonald's. They start driving around the neighborhood looking for him. They see him on the corner of St. Mark's and First,
2: and they take him into custody. He
3: James, who has lived in the Midwest, has a full history on social media ranting about public issues, from crime and racism to homelessness. In his videos, James said he received mental health services that made him more dangerous, claiming he wanted to kill everything in sight. And it turns out he is a repeat offender with nine prior arrests, from sex acts to trespassing. Authorities say James set off two smoke bombs in that subway car, then fired off 33 shots from a Glock 9 millimeter handgun that he bought in a Columbus, Ohio pawn shop in 2011. James reportedly bought a subway card and used it to ride the subway hours after the shooting. But tonight, thanks to an eagle-eyed New Yorker and the work of the NYPD, James is behind bars. Tucker?
2: Eric, Sean, thank you. So what should we think of the story? We should say at the outset that not every tragedy has obvious lessons. We are hesitant to draw quick and dirty political conclusions, particularly partisan ones, from something bad that happened. Not every mudslide in Sri Lanka or cyclone in Ohio is the result of climate change. Fair. But it's still interesting to know a lot more about the man who apparently committed this crime, Frank James. Who was he? What did he think? Well, it turns out that for years, Frank James posted black supremacist rants on his YouTube channel for all to see. Some of these videos date back to 2013 and continue to very recently. He uploaded within the last few days.
0: So, You think if he'd posted uh, white supremacist rants that they'd still be up on YouTube for eight years? Overnight,
2: the journalist Andy No unearthed a number of these posts. You can go find them online. We're not going to show them to you. But we want to read you some expert excerpts, so you have some idea of what this man was thinking. In one video he posted to YouTube, James declares that, quote, white people and black people, as we call ourselves, should not have any contact with each other. Blacks and whites, so-called, should not even be in the same hemisphere. James seemed especially enraged that Judge Kentonji Brown Jackson, Joe Biden's Supreme Court pick, had married a white man. Quote, I had no idea that she would be married to a white man. Yeah, our black sister, Supreme Court Justice, power to the people, is married to an effing white man. In other posts, James called for violence against people on the basis of their skin color. In one video, James says, for example, that, quote, the white MFers that I want to kill, you know, I really want to kill them because they're white. Pretty direct about his feelings on that. On Facebook, he posted a meme that said, quote, oh, black Jesus, please kill all the whiteies.
0: Wait, I thought social media was supposed to take down racial hate. Oh, wait, it doesn't really care so much about black racial hatred against white people.
2: Why was he so angry? Well, James explained that himself. Quote, the vast majority of people, white MFers, are racist. He'd seen that on CNN and and he believed it. There were signs long before the shooting yesterday that James was dangerous, that he might act out against other people.
0: So you think all this uh, racial hatred whipped up by the news media against white people? Or do you think that might uh, help set some mentally ill people even further off balance, so that they then go out and commit heinous things like this? In one instance,
2: James filmed himself shouting racial epithets at people on the street. "Quote, f you and your white ass too, you mf'er." And to throw that in for good luck, I don't listen. Yeah, white racist mf'er. They do exist. They do effing exist. We could go on and on and on. He attacks Asians, too. Disgusting. So this guy was a racist. He was not a white supremacist. And I mean, there are a lot of serial
0: killers out there, and, and they're not racist. Right? I mean, this guy's not a serial killer, but man, this racism... So bad.
2: That might surprise you because Joe Biden and some of the shills who work for him, including the attorney general and the head of DHS, have told us again and again and again. And The New York Times has confirmed this again and again and again that white supremacists, right wing Trump voters, are the number one terror threat in the United States of America. Here's Biden.
5: We must confront and defeat political extremism, white supremacy and domestic terrorism. White supremacy. Domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. According to the United States intelligence community, domestic terrorism from white supremacists is the most lethal terrorist threat in the homeland.
2: What a liar he is. Yeah, there are racists of all colors in this country, but white supremacy is not the main threat we face. Racial animus of all kinds is not the main threat we face. And in fact, since Joe Biden took office, there has not been a single deadly attack by a white supremacist or a QAnon shaman. At the same time since Joe Biden took office, a BLM supporter rammed his car into a barricade at the Capitol and murdered a police officer. Then another BLM supporter ran over dozens of people, including children, at a Christmas parade in Wisconsin, Waukesha, killing six people. Many more were maimed. Most recently, a BLM supporter, and by the way, an honoree of the Barack Obama Foundation, tried to assassinate a mayoral candidate in Kentucky. Again, most people who commit acts of violence like this are mentally ill. So there isn't always an obvious political lesson. But if you take three steps back, maybe if the entire news media tells you every day of your life that America hates you because of your skin color, you might respond to that at a certain point. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't we see more crimes like this? They're being abetted and effectively encouraged by the Biden administration and the American news media, obviously, and it's bad for everybody of all colors, sowing race hatred, suspicion, anxiety is terrible for the country and they're doing it every single day. Horace Cooper is the co-chairman of project 21's national advisory board. He joins us tonight. Horace Cooper. Thanks so much for coming on. I I always feel guilty about drawing quick conclusions.
0: Yes. uh, Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Cooper, for coming on the show. So you're probably wondering how, how did the New York times cover this? All right. So this black terrorist was, was out and about free for about 32 hours after his shooting and the New York Times, you'll be shocked to know, did pretty much everything they could not to identify the guy. All right? They, they did everything good not they could, not to mention that he's black and not to, to promote his, his picture. I mean, you had to dive pretty deep, note Steve Saylor, into New York Times coverage to even find a picture of the shooter or, or a useful description of the shooter. It's just like, Gunman at large after subway shooting leaves several injured. Police are searching. But uh, does the New York Times give us much of a clue who they're searching for? Well, you have to read and read and scroll and scroll, right? You've got a terrorist on the loose, right? You've got a very dangerous man on the loose, and the New York Times is doing everything they can to obfuscate and to not identify who this violent, dangerous terrorist is, right? You've got all these videos the New York Times putting, has, has put up on its website, and None of them included a picture of the suspect, right? So if you go 1,563 words deep, if you scroll through eight photos and two videos, one custom-made map, you finally get a photo of the shooter on the loose. And uh, the New York Times still can't bear to use the word black to describe the gunman. Ah, but at least they do capitalize black when they get to it. So he, he blamed black women for violence among black people, at least capital B. By contrast, you go to the New York Post, you get uh, the search is on, right? New York Post, all right, the, the working class publication, right, the, the prole publication, they don't have much of a, they don't have much of a dilemma, nailing who, who the shooter is. So Stephen Turner wrote, fascinating essay back in 2020 for the European Journal of Social Theory. Do you you subscribe to the European Journal of Social Theory? So he is a philosopher of the social sciences, and he published an essay Explaining Way Crime, The Race Narrative in American Sociology and Ethical Theory. So rates of crime for blacks in the United States in the post-slavery era have always been high relative to whites. They were high in the pre-slavery, well, there wasn't a pre-slavery era, but uh, they were certainly high prior to the Civil War as well. But explaining or minimizing this fact faces a major problem. Individual excuses for bad acts point to deficiencies in the agent, which are perhaps forgivable, such as mental deficiency or a deprived childhood, but... At the price of treating the agent as less than a full member of the moral community. We want to embrace Frank James in our moral community. Do we not? Despite all this, Ford still considers the New York Times to be a great source of information. Well, there are sometimes great stories in the New York Times uh, at a higher rate than, say, great stories on Fox News. Fox News is a tabloid publication. It it has its upsides, but it's still fundamentally a tabloid publication. Chat says, Frank James would be acquitted on the grounds that white people are mega racist. Tonya says, I see a RICO-style lawsuit, which would include Brian Stelter and Jake Tapper for egging on this uh, black racial hatred. Frank James does not embrace an ideology of love and inclusion. Maybe he was driven to violence by white privilege. Okay, so you can you can create excuses, right? And f- for criminals, and you can say that they're suffering from deprivation or racism or mental deficiency, but you then say that uh, these people are less than a full member of the moral community. So collectivizing excuses risks implying group inferiority. If you want to provide an excuse for all members of a group, whether it's Jews or Christians or Muslims or blacks or homosexuals, right, you are simultaneously implying group inferiority, God forbid. Uh, Star Lion says, TRS sucks these days. The right stuff but their episode today went all over the subway shooter videos. Pretty funny stuff. Doesn't Jeff Bezos own the New York Times? though he owns the Washington Post. Carlos Slim was a key... Financier of the New York Times, Carlos Slims, comes from, uh, his family comes from Lebanon and uh, from a, an extreme right uh, phalange group in, in Lebanon. The New York Times has a mission that Luke respects for some reason. I don't respect necessarily the mission, I respect that they publish more interesting articles than any other news source of which I'm aware. So the history of attempts to provide an explanation of crime that mitigates blame without undermining full participation to the moral community is long and convoluted, leading to the presently widespread claim that crime is itself a product of victimization through pervasive racism. So there are three basic strategies to explain away disproportionate crime rates. So one is a rejection of the comparison. So you just can't look at uh, crime rate statistics for various races or religious groups. Another, you attribute to racially invariant causes and explanations by reference to uniquely black conditions such as subculture or extreme stigmatization. And uh, let's get into this article. The American race problem has always been interwoven with the problem of crime and the stigmatization of black people as criminals. So from the beginnings, of American social science, the facts related to black crime and the problems of explaining these facts have been controversial. The public Non-professional literature, as well as the memoir literature, has continued to agonize over the problem. Within the professional literature, the topic of racial differences in crime has been subject to a certain aversion or taboo, which has taken three forms. Right? So an unwillingness to address the matter directly, an unwillingness to treat crime as part of the explanation for such phenomena as housing segregation, And finally, a focus on the discriminatory aspects of the justice system. So the standard criminology literature provides general theoretical accounts of crime without mentioning race. Literature on Black communities omits mention of crime. The problem of racial differences in crime has largely vanished from the criminology literature, and its focus in relation to race has shifted to the sociology of law and to questions involving the justice system itself. So we don't look at the groups committing disproportionate amounts of crime. We don't focus on the individuals and their families and their communities that commit vast rates of crime. Instead, we think, oh, what did we do as a society and as a justice system to to lead a tiny percentage of the population to commit a majority of the murders? The fundamental issues over race and crime derive from some basic facts. In the United States, black crime rates, particularly violent and property crime rates, exceed white crime rates by a large margin. And they have done so for as long as we've been keeping stats. So with 13% of the population, black people account for 53% of arrests for murder, and non-negligent manslaughter, 37% of arrests for violent crime, and 30% for arrests for property crime. So what do these rates mean? Right? So sociologists don't want to take them seriously. They, they say, oh, these just represent racist patterns of law enforcement. But when you combine reports by victims along with these statistics, they these statistics seem to be reflecting reality. So black rates of incarceration are astronomically higher compared to other groups. And then the consequences for black life are dramatic. So black men constitute 6% of the U.S. adult population, but 35% of the prison population... They are incarcerated at a rate six times that of white males. One in three black men will be incarcerated at some point in his life. So this fact of black crime itself has led to a long history of negative associations. So the fact of crime itself has massive consequences for black people who are not criminals, who suffer from the stigma associated with blackness and crime, as well as they suffer disproportionately as the victims of black crime. So crime is inseparable from the problem of race, especially the problem of racial stigma and racial distrust, and therefore discrimination and segregation are inseparable from black crime. Now, Breitbart used to have a whole section just on on black crime that shows how you know low class Breitbart is. I mean, you can't really talk about these things in elite circles; it's it's uh, taboo at universities, and the higher the ground socially and culturally the more difficult it is to talk about these things. So to the extent that America as a whole is racialized in its response to various topics, crime is always a lurking variable, both as a cause and effect. So remember after O.J. Simpson was acquitted of a double homicide, overwhelmingly blacks thought that was great and overwhelmingly whites thought that was awful. So a lot of people, the O.J. Simpson verdict was a wake-up call that we're an incredibly divided country. Alexander says, Luke needs to do another deep dive on millennial woes. He's spiraling lately. I was alt-right and I de-radicalized myself. Being a Wignat made me hollow and soulless. I created the Kiwi Farms thread for woes. He's a neckbeard with delusions of grandeur. Absolutely fascinating. Is uh, Mike Enoch still obese and paranoid? I don't know. Yeah, so what exactly is millennial woes doing these days? Why is the New York Times so loved by Luke? Uh, Because they have a lot of interesting articles. Like deep stuff, man, deep stuff. Okay, because the differences in crime between people in different racial categories are large. Yeah, white people commit a lot more crime than Asians. East Asians, because the differences are large. They are always confounded with other differences. So rates of poverty, joblessness, proportions... Living in segregated communities, out of wedlock childbearing, fatherless families—other things are also higher. So, yeah, there there are patterns. People who make cautious decisions. So there's the cliche that uh, Asians drive very carefully and consequently slowly. And there's also the cliche that uh, Asians are say more selective in who, who they go to bed with, and as a result, Asians have much lower STD rates than say white people. Asians. Because they're more careful, they are less likely to get injured or to die in accidents. Because they are more careful, they tend to get more education and make more money and to save more money and to have more solid family life than whites. And you can then find similar differences between, say, whites and some parts of the Hispanic community and then between some parts of the Hispanic community and blacks. So... What sort of explanations do the elites provide when they acknowledge differences in racial crime rates? And how do they explain these differences in ways that do not demean black people as a group? So, there's a famous paper in 1962 called Freedom and Resentment, and this is, provides a basic model for thinking about excuses. You, you've read Freedom and Resentment, right? It's written by Peter Strawson. So excuses for what would ordinarily be punishable acts of individuals such as murder typically take the following form. The offending person was not a full moral agent. They weren't fully in control of their actions. They had some kind of incapacitation and some kind of disability. And they are mentally incompetent. They're like a child, unable to distinguish between right and wrong, or they're a mentally ill adult. But these kinds of disability mean that they are not proper agents. So I often have encountered women who have had uh, sexual relations with powerful men when they the women were adults and it wasn't a matter of rape it's just that uh, the man's charisma and power just overwhelmed their decision making and so they want the men held responsible because they could not control themselves going to bed with with powerful men so if women like this don't want to take moral responsibility, then I think they should have someone in their life who takes responsibility for their choices, an an uncle, a father, a a brother. Some man has to be responsible if uh, these types of women don't want to take responsibility for their choices. So when you say that that the rabbi was just so charismatic, you couldn't help going to bed with him, you're really saying that you have a disability. You're not a full member of the moral community and you're kind of outside of the community, right? You've got uh, limited mental and moral capacity. So we tend to have a positive attitude towards those with whom we, we regard as full moral agents, but those who we do not regard as full moral agents, we we look at them as objects, we look at them as mentally deranged. So the literature on black crime wants to refute standard prejudices to the effect that blacks as a group have a natural racial propensity for crime. Now, the point of the argument is ethical and it reflects the basic structure of Peter Strawson's argument. So to say that black people have a natural propensity for crime is to say that they lack a capacity to act freely and this would imply non-membership or lesser membership in the moral community. Now, the goal of much of the black crime literature is to avoid Demeaning explanations of this kind while at the same time attributing black crime rates to conditions or aspects of black life which make them unable to behave as normal members of the moral community. Now, this seems like an impossible task. Most forms of incapacitation that remove a person or a group from the moral community are demeaning. But if we can just come up with an account of incapacitation that is not demeaning, in which the person incapacitated is the real victim or individually innocent, then We've we've met the gold standard here. Alexander says Millennial Woes wants to believe he's powerful. He's currently trying to organize a neat uprising. His goal is to save the white race. To convince needs to get white women pregnant. Okay, so theories of crime generally struggle to connect causes to outcomes. Right? Establishing vast incapac- incapacitation for entire racial or religious groups uh, is really hard to make a case for that empirically. So conventional sociological response is to reject racial theories that posit some sort of natural propensity to crime among any people. Right? The same causes produce the same results in different races. That's been the traditional sociology response. It assumes that racial disparities can be explained by causative factors that are the same for both groups, but vary only quantitatively. So poverty supposedly should have an equal causal effect in both groups, but the group with higher rates of poverty will correspondingly have higher crime rates. So this acknowledges the differences in crime rates, but provides a kind of absolution at the group level. Black people are no worse than white people in the same circumstances. So this has come to be called the racial invariance thesis. So it does not involve a claim of incapacitation. Black people are taken to be responding as normal members of the moral community as white people would under similar circumstances. Now, the one downside to this is that the racial invariance thesis has never been established to be true. Right? It functions instead as a methodological precept, as a knee-jerk response to ingrained racism. Now, there are significant racial disparities in poverty, housing, family structure, and other conditions associated with differences in crime rates. So this thesis is a way of sidestepping the racialization of the issue of crime, and it points to policy solutions. It assumes that racial differences in crime rates will disappear, along with changes in economic and social conditions. So the whole larger race problem itself can be subordinated to political and economic conditions, which, if changed, will produce an attitude change in favor of blacks. Now, it seems simple to support this thesis and to establish the true causes of racial differences in crime, but there are at least three methodological problems that make this topic unmanageable. And then there are all sorts of theoretical issues that follow from the methodological ones. So the key issue is whether the relevant correlations is with the relevant correlations. Correlations, turning them into causal explanations. Correlation, not necessarily causation. So the conditions associated with crime do correlate with one another, or they confound in ways that make it impossible to separate them into causes. So at best, criminologists can come up with long lists of correlatives of crime. Now, the causal relations themselves are not additive, but they are redundant. So removing one cause through policy does not affect outcomes because another correlated cause will produce the same outcome all on its own. So the empirical flaw in the invariance thesis is that there is more black crime than can be accounted for by the standard conditions. Uh, let's see what uh, Tucker Carlson has to say.
2: To contact and have been interviewed by the FBI, apparently he had prior arrests, We read today he was on a watch list at one point. James Gugliano was the head of FBI's crisis management program in New York City, also served as a SWAT team commander and counterterrorist operator on the elite hostage rescue team at FBI. He joins us tonight. James, thanks so much for coming on. So these are the reports that we have read. We can't verify
6: them. Do you think they're true? And if so, what does it mean? Well, first of all, Tucker, thanks for having me on. Um, of course. It, this is—it's it's good news today that Frank James was apprehended, and I have full faith in the NYPD, the FBI, the JTTF, and the, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms for coordinating and making the arrest. The fact that this individual showed up on a radar—now, going back to 2016 with Omar Mateen and the Pulse nightclub shooting— um, people ask, well, if these folks have been interviewed. Why aren't they in custody? Unfortunately, you know, we've got this pesky Fourth Amendment thing in the United States. It makes it right. really difficult. People say hyperbolic things. I listened as you read through that slew of bigoted and, and, and awful um, um, online rantings that this individual had posted. A lot of times it's difficult. You can do a knock and talk. You can interview somebody. They can be on your radar, but you can't keep them under perpetual surveillance. And unfortunately, in a country like the United States with 327 million people and only 12,000 FBI agents, it makes it tough to make sure that something like this doesn't happen.
2: I think that's right. I mean, that, that sounds like an entirely fair explanation to me. I'm wondering about the security cameras in the New York City subway system. There are many thousands of cameras down there. We're learning that it just so happens that the cameras at this scene were not working. What do you take from that?
6: Yeah, so we've come a long way with technology in in law enforcement. I mean, going back to the early 20th century, we, we figured out blood typing. And in 1930s, we had latent fingerprint evidence recovery. And then in 1987, 1988, DNA now, everyone is so accustomed to a one-hour TV drama where the crime occurs, it's investigated, and it's adjudicated, and the person goes to jail in one neat 60-minute package. It doesn't always work that way. The five boroughs in New York are about 320 square miles. And, Tucker, I would submit that the vast majority of that is blanketed with either governmental, meaning police surveillance cameras, or private, uh, you know, bodega owner or a shop store has uh, have cameras out there. The problem at the 36th Street Station and the 25th Street Station here appears to be, and again, I'm just looking at reports, related to Wi-Fi and a server issue. So the film footage was captured. It just wasn't able to be transferred expeditiously to the people that needed it, which was 1PP, police headquarters, and the FBI office at 26 Federal Plaza in, in lower Manhattan. So the cameras were operating. We just don't have the video yet. That's correct. Because it would
2: be a little weird that the cameras didn't work outside Epstein's cell and at this shooting. But you made me feel better um, knowing that it's not that big a deal. James, thanks so much for coming on and explaining all that. I appreciate it.
6: Thanks for having me on, Tucker.
2: Thanks. So millions of foreign nationals have streamed into our country Mm. over our southern border. The Biden administration has welcomed them here, completely transforming the United States. Texas could shut it down. Of course, it's their border. They could send their National Guard there. Would that provoke a confrontation? Maybe. Would it be worth it? Obviously. But they're not doing that. Instead, they're sending migrants to Washington, D.C. on buses. Well, us solve the problem. Could it just be political theater? Well, let you decide. We've got a report from the scene straight ahead. Thanks. Thanks, Tucker.
0: Blessings. Okay, let's get back to this uh, terrific uh, Stephen Turner essay. So the problem with the invariance thesis is there's more black crime that can be accounted for by the standard conditions. So this leads to a quest for conditions unique to the black community. So the second methodological problem is the supposed cause was racially invariant in the sense that theoretically any race subject to it would respond in the same way, but this is empirically impossible to assess because the cause is unique to black people. The possible causes of the This kind, the unique fact of anti-black racism and its consequences in the unique responses to it by black people looms the largest, but these facts cannot be reduced to linear causal relations and require complex mechanisms. Then there's a whole long tradition related to the differential treatment in the justice system. Maybe the problem is over-policing. So... W.E.B. Du Bois argued that crime statistics were the result of abusive Southern sheriffs, but this is countered by one of his statistical mentors, showed that the same racial differentials rose in upstate New York, and black prisoners in the North had higher per capita rates of incarceration than in the South. So the most famous recent example of this type of argument is Michelle Alexander's count of incarceration as the new Jim Crow. Blessings to Elliot Blatt.
7: <laughs> blessing, bro. Uh, uh. How how, how, how does it go? How,
0: how how goes it, Luke? I'm blessed. Love is all around. Yeah, we're all, us. Blessed. I'm we're all blessed. I'm growing in self love. I'm growing in self love every day. How about you, Elliot?
7: We're all blessed. With each headline, it's just another blessing. Just you know,
0: uh, are you growing <laughs> in self love, bro?
7: <laughs> Exponentially, bro. I have to take math just to count it. I have to take like advanced math classes just to tabulate the blessings that uh, I'm accruing with each passing day. Uh, I don't know, Luke. I don't know, Luke. I'm at this point where um, all of these news stories just kind of wash over me. I I feel like I've heard them a thousand times. and They just don't have any impact on me anymore. Is this true of you?
0: Uh, So I think what you're saying is that you have consumed so much hate porn that uh, Mm -hmm. more hate porn just isn't giving the same same effect. And so you need you need a more concentrated form of hate point, hate porn to get the the same old rise that you used to get just from a from a run of the mill story like this.
7: Right. I've been through like the uh, indignation treadmill so many times. It just feels like I'm marking time at the gym, you know. Um I, I I need a new drug, Luke.
0: one that makes me feel like I do when I'm with you. <laughs> exactly. I need a new Luke.
7: drug. <laughs> yes. I don't know, I'm trying to get indignant, I'm trying to uh I'm trying to engage with this story, but the the play it just feels like an episode of a sitcom that we've already seen, you know? And we know the we know how we know the various we know where the plot turns we know what the people are going to say we know the the premise of the joke we know the punchline uh it's just hard to be uh amused by it anymore it's just feels like whatever this course we're on needs to run its course i don't feel like people want to engage with the substance of it anymore and i mean i feel like the battle lines have been drawn people have made their opinions and they can't um you know they can't uh, back out of them. They can't open those questions up. These these matters seem to be closed in the minds of most people.
0: So you're saying that this topic is not as interesting as the ups and downs of Ethan Ralph? That, that's
7: what I'm. No, saying. no exactly right. Now uh, in contrast, you have the, the the tales the ever, ever deepening the ever. Complicating the the new nuances of the of the the rise and now long fall of Ethan Ralph, which offers this unbelievable uh birthday, river love of your nectar, dad of, Jim, of just and pure Josh, that, Jim and best Josh Jim and there's a new episode tonight that I on the to corn
8: harvest and enjoy
5: that Take and I can't you. wait Ethan feels happy like birthday old Ethan love like your dad Jim and-
7: rush home to see.
0: So what what's this about the corn harvest? What's the upcoming corn harvest?
5: Okay,
7: so so I know the Lord. Do you want me to uh, regale you with this? Please, or is this? please. Okay, so um, so Joshua Moon, who is I, I think I have the story right. You know, there's going to be some spurts and correct me on some details, but uh, Joshua Moon, the Kiwi Farms proprietor. Um, in a sort of offhanded comment proposed that um, our circles needed to basically sacrifice Ethan Ralph by throwing him to the corn, which was a reference to a movie of some kind that I haven't seen, but it was a way of throwing someone to the corn meant sort of, you know, be rid of them and sacrifice them to appease the gods. So, the corn uh so when you hear references to corn that's what they're referring to. Does that okay. make sense? Okay. So so yeah it's it's a deeply inside joke and you only you, you would only get it if you've been following the lore for many years like I have. Been.
0: Okay. And what is going on with Ethan Ralph these days?
7: I, well, um he's now a father of two. Um different mothers uh i don't know the status of the relationships uh with this newest newborn but his family life is a bit chaotic um as you can imagine and his only source of income is streaming and to stream and to capture and engage an audience he has seems to have to keep upping the ante on his antics and events that he throws right he has to keep the nectar flowing he has to keep the stream of super chats going because these are the these are the uh this is the income that he needs to feed these kids with and the problem is is because he's sort of alienated so many people he's been hemorrhaging audience and so as his audience flees he sort of has to double down on the theatrics that he engages to sort of attract more audience so he's sort of in this um treadmill of ever increasing um uh spectacles and with each spectacle creates a reaction to the spectacle so he has this sort of deep contingent of haters and they have they just kind of (laughs) riff on Ralph And (laughs) and these are These are some of the Internet's uh, uh, brightest minds. These are some of the sharpest wits out there. And so with each sort of uh, joke on Ralph, it creates this stream of of comedy for uh, the proles, such as myself, to uh, enjoy. Does that make sense? Sure. (laughs) It's a a long and sordid tale, but that's effectively where we are.
0: And uh, who, who's uh, engaging in Ethan Ralph um, right now?
9: Like, who
0: who who's challenging him?
7: Uh, well, uh, it's PPP primarily. PPP and Worski are sort of at the top of this pyramid of the... Uh, and then to some extent, Medicare, but Medicare is a bit compromised with his health. But he's always a figure that sort of looms in the background as the godfather of all things blood sports but you right. know um but you know his health is bad and so he can only actually make an appearance and when he does make his appearance it's it's sort of like Elvis coming out of retirement it's like a huge thing in and of itself but now Medicare and Ralph they weren't exactly friends but they were definitely allies and they they had this sort of mutual uh their relationship was mutually beneficial to each of them and so uh, it took a very long time, but now Medicare has finally turned on Ralph, and um, this is bas- You know, this is sort of a a kind of Caesar <coughs> Brutus moment. You know, this was like one of the largest betrayals in internet history, uh, and now Medicare is firmly in the anti-Ralph camp. And this, so when Medicare turned on Ralph he took a big part of ralph's audience and um uh this is deeply embittered ralph uh i i'm a little bit off the thread here so go ahead no no i'm listening so um there's that subplot you know uh and it's amazing that i know like so much about this but i do <laughs> and um Uh, and so like you know winding back to our traditional theme of the E personality Ralph you know he was I don't I don't know the actual numbers but I think they were at least five digits he was probably making five digits a month with his streams and the super chats I mean he was a he you know you were on his show but he had like Michelle Malkin who's like a Fox News contributor at one point in her life you know These are like, you know, at least maybe B tier uh, uh, media personalities that were appearing on his show, and uh, and you know uh, you know and part of So in turn, I feel I'm sort of disgusted by Ralph, and then I sort of have this vague pity for Ralph. This weird way, like um, you know, he he's on a collision course with some sort of. uh, uh uh, uh, you know i dare say suicide i don't know how somebody can sort of pull out of this tailspin and i'm in a small way i'm rooting for him at the same time i'm sort of delighted (laughs) in the humor that surrounds him it's just really a very complicated place to be
0: yeah well you're an empath but i mean you also you're also a man and you have your needs
7: Exactly, right. exactly Luke. you you're like uh you're like a like a Japanese haiku uh, uh aficionado thank you so, concise. <laughs> so so concise you cut to the heart with just a few you simi- just a few syllables you know
0: so it was a, kind of a shame that uh, I guess Ethan Ralph and Baked Alaska both got swatted at separate houses <laughs> while streaming together yesterday.
9: I missed that. <laughs>
7: See, that's a bit of lore that's a bit of lore that now I get to savor each and every moment of that. This is the weird thing about the internet. You like, A, you never miss anything. And B, every little move gets to be like hyper analyzed by a Greek chorus of haters. It's just a am so glad that I never really like took that step and became a streamer you know i always I, I sensed the danger involved in this and i i just backed away i turned away i knew some part some intuition said no danger don't go there
0: danger you know? danger yeah
7: yeah so um so i got that going you know so that's sort of blew in the background but yeah i'm having a hard time uh engaging in mainstream politics i'm having a hard time caring uh, even I feel bad about not caring, but at the same time uh this it just feels like a script that 's already been written, and I have a little part in it 's unfolding
0: yeah that 's the thing about living in the United States of america it 's really hard to to make uh social change all right the The, the political system is kind of built in a way it 's hard to pass laws it 's hard to make a big impact but but Elliot, you can you can think globally and act locally
7: <laughs> Yes, you can Luke, but uh you can't have any sort of you can't be goal oriented when you act locally you have to uh, be satisfied with the relationships you create so very locally
0: so here's here's my my criteria uh for for consuming this kind of stuff is uh, how do I feel afterwards? Like if I'm happier and, and more alive and, and more engaged and, uh, and, and I've got the energy, got got more energy and uh, it sends me out to interact with, with normies in, in a positive frame and uh, useful frame of mind, then, then it's good by me. But if it isolates me and makes me have more difficulty communicating with normies, then I want to severely limit my consumption.
7: Yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly fine criteria. So I do feel good. I do feel good, at least while consuming this sort of... Yeah, but what about afterwards?
0: Cough. What about afterwards? Is there is there a downer? <laughs> I mean, should, maybe you should only do this on weekends.
7: <laughs> well, it's, it's not like I'm sitting there with my eyes, you know, glued to the screen. I'm just listening in the background. As I'm doing other things.
9: Yeah, you, you know.
7: Yeah, I mean, in the old days, you know, I, it's like of all the things in the world, am I looking? Am I like going into some deep philosophical content? No. Am I listening to some Mozart sonata? No. What am I listening to? <laughs> I'm listening to gossip about Ethan Ralph. You know, like you know, how did I get here? <laughs> as as the Talking head said, you know, you may you may ask yourself, how did I get here? So uh, yeah, you got lowbrow, Luke. Like the, all this highbrow stuff that I, you know, potentially, you know, sensibly aspire to, isn't real. When when push comes to shove, you have to you have to judge people by what they do and not what they say. And I'm looking at what I do. And it's not a pretty picture, Luke.
0: Now, do you try talking with Nomi's
7: about this exciting stuff? <laughs> not a chance Luke. There's, there's not, there's like, there is like a, uh, uh, there is a grand Canyon uh, between me and the average normie in terms of my media consumption. Like normies talk about television programs I haven't heard of. Um, (laughs) You know, no idea who Ethan Ralph is or what a normie is
9: for that matter.
7: (laughs) normies don't even know that they're normies (laughs) they're just norming you know They're, they're they're just blissfully innocent they're very special creatures
0: and uh how's the magic mushroom consumption these days
7: uh uh it's been a while uh i'm sort of gearing up to sort of take the next step um so but i i made a promise to myself that i wouldn't do this until i've done my taxes and you know, um that day is coming you know I'm almost ready to do that.
0: oh, you're almost ready to to fire your taxes
9: <laughs>
7: look, this is a very emotional experience for me. <laughs>
9: it's like
7: it's um it's like it's uh I can't tell you how stressful I find the whole process, you know, because a- every answer every question that's asked you know you like it's a it's a it's a test of character and in your integrity. You know, because there's so much latitude <laughs> to BS. You know, and like, ah, uh, you know, you, you know, you think about what the tax dollars go for, and then I go to sort of fits of rage, and like, um, you know, I find the whole process grueling. I, I can't take it stoically like I used to.
0: I think you should put off doing your taxes. Go out and see if you can enable some kind of alcoholic or drug addict, and then yeah. hope that someone comes along and does your taxes for you
7: <laughs> <laughs> that's truly what my that's what I'm hoping for subconsciously like this that's truly you know you've really you know drilled in you've you you've uh, you've unearthed the the pathology that's lurking beneath my subconscious and that's very skillfully done, Luke. Well
0: done. Thank you. No, if you go out and help an alcoholic, you know, maybe yeah. an alcoholic will care about you.
7: <laughs> well, okay. So it just, it just amazes me that like, I don't know what percentage this is, but I, I'm going to guess 20%, right? Mm-hmm. 20% of people walking around, staggering around the United States of America. The government is a source of wealth for them,
9: mm-hmm.
7: right? And for the remaining 80%, it's an absolute burden, right? It's a crushing burden. And it's it's this 80% of people for whom taxes are a burden. These are the competent people. And, like, it's just the inversion of morality. It's just, like, the more incompetent you are, the more the government is of service to you. It's just... and. To question this is to just uh, uh, you know know, is to betray this sort of giant moral failing among you know the the normie the liberal normie, Um, and so I just find this is why this is why uh, you know uh, the taxes are just so fuck they're just so traumatizing for me.
0: Maybe if you just ignore them, the problem will go away on its own.
7: Just not file them. Just not do them. Yeah. <laughs> They're inevitable, bro. There's no, believe me, I thought about it. It's just not possible. They come for you. They know. Right? You can't, every, every time you get paid, you know, like everyone knows exactly how much you get paid. Right? Yeah. But it does, it does, it just always gets my mind thinking, it's like, how can I get paid, like, how can I circumvent this bullshit? You know, my mind starts racing with all these ideas. Uh, do you, do you
0: uh, think about how you can navigate gravity as well?
7: No, I don't. I don't. I accept certain things as inevitable, okay. such as gravity, death, and taxes, as the okay. cliche goes. So, uh, so Luca, what happened yesterday? Like this was a, uh, like a four hour stream on a Monday. Or was yeah. I did four three?
0: hours on a Monday. I, well, I was, I was ready was it to, Tuesday.
7: Yeah, it was on Monday. Monday
0: I did four hours. I was ready to wind it up at three, but then uh, Matthew came into the chat and wanted to, wanted to talk. So. Okay. So yeah, I just got, got carried away. I've read all these books and papers by Stephen Turner. And so when I have the okay. energy and the strength and the enthusiasm to, to power through things because when i read something good i want to remember mm. it and one key way for me to remember it is to try to teach it to somebody else such as through my show and so mm. someone asked me how do you remember all the books you read well i i, I teach the, the highlights of them through my show and then that helps me to remember what what i just read and okay. that, that energy is fleeting like if i don't seize it You know, it may not come back for that particular article or book.
7: It's gone forever.
0: Not necessarily, but maybe, yeah.
7: You know, I thought, wow, it's a Monday show. It's a little, you know, midweek quickie from Luke. Not like this sort of, you know, multi-hour afternoon delight that we got (laughs) yesterday,
9: you know?
0: What can I say? I'm like waking up at 4 a.m., like excited to read books, so...
7: Oh man! Wow. Now, I find that i'm becoming uh, um I need more and more sleep now, like I don't just sort of spring out of bed like i used to i, I I'm like um, I'm tired and achy like is this is this is this age or is this just you know some sort of health condition?
0: I, I think it's from social isolation. Like when you're connected to people and you're looking forward to meeting people and and doing things with people, you get tremendous mm-hmm. energy. For for example, I got together with a friend on on Sunday and and with with no problem, we just went out and you know walked seven miles along the beach, and and mm-hmm. then I, I came home and did another nine miles on my bike because I, I was powered by that connection. Like I was able to talk to him about you know all these kind of awkward things that I'd been thinking about but hadn't talked about with anyone, and so. When you, when you connect with people, it's like you, you, plug, you plug into a source of power
7: and yeah, but, you but take this, it away not, from you too. But I, this isn't like emotional fatigue. It's like literally physical fatigue.
0: There's like, no, no divider between physical, there's no strong objective divider between physical and emotional fatigue because your physical state affects your emotions. Your emotions affect your, your physical state. So when you get plugged in to other people, you have satisfying, like if you had an 18 year old girl to have sex with, uh, last night or this morning, like if you had to like wake up at 5am to have sex with an attractive 18 year old girl, do you think you could have done it?
7: Honestly? Yes. <laughs> I'm so tired, Luke. I'm so tired. You don't tired. think you
0: could have gotten up at 5am to bang an attractive 18 year old girlfriend?
7: I would have thought through the consequences. I'm, I'm getting that. I'm getting old, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> no, but it, it's a strong hypo I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hearty challenge issue. But um, have I ever mentioned grass-fed beef
0: organs from ancestral supplements?
7: <laughs> well, I believe you have. Yeah, but I'm, I'm making a beef soup right now. I make my soup, you know, from scratch. I don't do this sort of. Stuff.
0: But these are grass-fed, New Zealand grass-fed. B. Fogan
7: supplements. you still doing
0: those?
7: <laughs> does it look like?
0: Does it sound like I'm still doing it sounds like, 20 no, miles I, a day, I, four hour I live streams?
7: In the, I mentioned in the chat, it sounds like you've been dipping into the old uh, testosterone supplements, bro. It yeah, like I've a, had, I've a, had some
0: testosterone supplements. I mean, I, I, I just walk around with solid wood, bro.
7: <laughs> wow, bro. You, 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 you uh, you're not this consistent. Yeah, I mean, you're on upswing. I mean, I have to say, you you're not always this high, Luke. I mean, you do, you do, you do, you do seem to be in upswing now. Is there going to be like a, a corresponding crash. A crash. manic crash that, that we have to endure as well? Like, where's Luke? Week three has not been streaming,
9: or is this sustained?
7: Is this a, like a true renaissance? Where right. Is this, this a is
0: smooth a, energy, or is it just jerky energy?
7: Yeah. Yeah. Like, is this a, is, a, is this a new floor or is this a ceiling?
0: Oh, I, I'm sure there'll be variability. And you know what will largely determine the variability? The quality of my What's... connections with other people. Like, if I go out on Passover and people shun me and I'm not, not able to engage with people and I don't have any satisfying uh, interactions and I feel left behind or left out or unloved, then that's going to be incredibly depleting. On the other hand, if I get on the same page with other people over Passover, then in all likelihood, I'm going to be enhanced by the experience and energized and strengthened.
9: Oh, well, you're a very lucky
7: man, Luke, because, uh, you know, I, I, I try to have like, uh, I try to have good social relationships, you know, I try to, to interact with people and, uh you know, I'm I, I feel like the odd man matter. I feel like I, I come away from these experiences feeling down, you know? And I I, I, I more often than not.
0: Which experiences coming on my show?
7: Well, no, no, no. Like IRL experiences. Oh. You know, you know, I, I I I seek out people that I consider to be, you know, winners and, you know, high energy and but even then, you know, like um uh, the the experiences just you know and and uh, you know they don't unfold in a way that I feel like is satisfying. Now, obviously, I'm contributing to this. You know, I'm not so um, you know solipsistic to think that 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 you know I'm not a factor in this equation. But um, uh, I, I don't have I don't seem to have the experience that you have, which is coming away energized at best i come away neutral
0: have you tried listening to some millennial woes
7: videos (laughs) no so what happened to millennial woes did uh, another
0: a lot of people find him incredibly energizing
7: (laughs) (laughs) well did he do a new stunt or is he he,
0: uh... he's got a new advice video out there for for neats so so what what are neats again
7: no education or employment or training. Oh, I know my I know my alt right lexicon.
0: Oh, what about modafinil, bro? Have you tried some modafinil with some alkaline water?
7: No, no. I'm I'm I'm. Apart from mushrooms, I'm I'm uh, anti drug. I, I I feel like I'm anti pharmaceutical, Luke. I can't I can't tell you. I can't. I'm not going to lie.
0: And the chat says Luke is only around people who give give him energy. He forgets about visiting the sick, the depressed, and the low T. No, I I I myself up to some interaction with the the sick and the depressed and and the, the losers, but I limit it. I limit it. I won't, yeah. you know. And I I constrain it. I I set boundaries on it. So you can certain people they can call me at this time every week, and and I'll talk to them, or I will you know interact with them for. Oh. Ten minutes or five minutes it's like uh, girls at a dance they sometimes give a mercy dance, and so like if there's some you know some loser at a social gathering i'll often be the first one to go over and seek him out and ask his name and, and talk to him for a few minutes but i don't give them i don't invite them to move in with me that Did you wasn't, hear- that wasn't a slam by the way. <laughs>
7: You really want me to open up on that, about that story, huh? Uh, Did you ever hear that Joe Frank story about his, about his, uh, about the homeless and his, 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 um, his attempts to engage with the homeless?
0: I'm not sure.
7: Okay. All right. It's one of the funniest stories ever recorded. You know, he's got a really amazing uh, catalog. Yeah. I keep pushing money. Uh but like, you know, it's like one of these things, Luke, where you you get energy from these people. You go out, you meet people, you, you shake hands, you laugh, you're the life of the party, you know. And me, I just sit around and, you know, I I kinda I make my little quips and so forth and I, I just come away. I there's two reactions. People are either really repelled by me, right? Which is one. The other reaction is people really like bond with me in a way that's just not healthy. Right. And, um, and both of these have pitfalls, you know, both of these aren't satisfying experiences because uh, the people that really bond with me are generally people that need somebody. Yeah. They need
0: something. They can (laughs) now you're an empath. So you're bonding with narcissists and addicts. Yeah. Alcoholics.
7: and then, you know, eventually, you know, they, they sort of insinuate. Not in a good they way. Ins- yeah. They, ins- <laughs> they insinuate themselves into your life. And uh, before you know it, like you're completely.
9: They've
7: moved uh, in. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Or yeah. Okay. We're not going to go with that particular story. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking in general here, but before you know it, you're like trying to like fix their fucking problem. Excuse my language. Yeah. Um, and it's such a slippery slope. You don't know where the line, uh, when you've crossed that line, you know?
9: Oh,
0: uh, I, I cured a paraplegic the other day. I, I smeared some beef organ meat mixed with modafinil on his legs and he was able to leave his wheelchair and start walking again.
7: <laughs> You're amazing, Luke. You're just a best. You are the best. Um, So... Wait, wait, wait! What
0: type of people can you bond with aside from the the narcissist who's going to
7: suck you dry? Can I bond with? Uh, yeah. uh, there's a certain type of, um, I would say, self reliant seeker types. You know.
0: Okay. If you put that, let's put that into Meetup. Self reliant seeker type, San Francisco. <laughs>
7: Oh, um, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, there's people that are sort of, uh, they're self-reliant, but they're also open to being social, you know?
0: They, self-reliant. They walk no, there, sorry, there are no events for self-reliant near you. Okay, seeker. Uh, oh, we got a job seekers group in San Jose, bro. Yeah. Uh,
7: We've got okay. memory
0: training yeah. for job seekers in Saratoga. We've got consciousness yeah. seekers virtually. We've got a psychic training circle in Santa Rosa. There's a uh, Calgary Psychics Center for Spiritual Living. Cosmic seekers yeah. in Santa Rosa. Bro, there are so many meetups in your neck of the woods yeah, but, for seekers. The, psychic development yeah. course, bro.
7: You know, uh, I, I wouldn't actually be opposed to that. Like, psychic development. I had a girlfriend that was really into psychic stuff.
0: How to be happier and more positive. Wisdom Seekers of Sacramento. Oh, God. Secrets of Mental Health. Also in Sacramento. Uh, Live Weekly Virtual Meditation. Portland Spiritual Seekers.
7: If you're in Sacramento, if you're you're a loser.
0: (laughs) Uh, Tarot Cards for Seekers and Skeptics.
9: Uh,
0: Ekon Car. Light and sound service. Econ car. Is is this your uh, Yogi about? Yes. Spiritual Uh, keys to a happier life. Daily global love and healing breaths. I think that's what you need. Sorry? I
7: I had a reason for calling in and you've completely obliterated my memory as to why I called in. Have you tried the daffinil? It's really helpful with memory. (sighs) ah no but funny you should say that though i do find that i wake up and like um it feels like there's these gaps in my brain now that need like a full hour to close up so i can work where i used to be able to like just jump out of bed and start working you know there's this just definitely physical uh... so i'm in the market for a bicycle so i have a feeling that if i got a bicycle and started doing some real aerobic exercises. Wait, are you are talking TV? a
0: stationary bike? I mean, I hope you're not biking outdoors. I mean, at your age, you know, you'll fall no, off your no, bike and I'm you'll on,
7: break your face. And... I'm only going to bike outdoors. I'm not going to, like... Look what happened like... to Paul
0: Gottfried. I mean,
7: it's... it's incre- uh, he really was on a bike?
0: Yeah, he fell he off his bike. bike, and he was out of action for months.
7: How old is he? He's, like, 80 years old.
0: It happens to kids. Like, it's an incredibly risky thing. I mean, when... You versus a car, the car's gonna win.
7: Luke, I was I was a competitive cyclist in high school, believe it or not. I I know my way around a bike, Luke. So I'm not I'm not worried. The only thing I'm worried about is flat tires. Like these city roads have all kinds of you know, debris in them. It gives you a flat tire. And if you get a flat tire, uh you either have to change it there, which is incredibly cumbersome, or you have to walk for miles. Or even worse, hitchhike, which is probably not recommended. So that's the only thing I worry about getting a bike.
0: I was a competitive lover in high school. I know my way around a woman's body.
7: <laughs> really? Now, did you take lessons or are you just a natural?
0: I, I read books.
7: <laughs> <laughs> books or magazines?
0: Both. Like I tried to be well rounded, <laughs> even saw some videos.
7: Yeah. Like there
0: was even one video that captured the male orgasm. Really? Yeah. For the first time, I think it was like historical.
7: God, you're still sick, aren't you? You're never really healed. You're just always in recovery. You know. <laughs> is there? Is Keep there coming back. You... It works if you work
0: it, bro. <sighs> oh no, Bruce mm-hmm. said he had sex with my mom. She's been dead for fifty-two years, Bruce. That—that's wrong.
7: No, that's some poor taste.
0: Uh, why, why did you I mean, call in today? Do you remember? I don't remember, Luke.
7: Maybe gotta, it was. You, I think it might have been that whole Ethan Ralph thing. It was the Ethan Ralph thing, I think. You, you
0: got to take uh, notes I, and you got to give me timestamps, bro. Uh, all right.
7: All right. right. Well, like, I didn't call in yesterday. Like, I got the invite. I didn't call in because I, I was actually dri- or, or on Monday. I was driving to get. Um, Oh, okay. So here's what I was thinking about. Like, uh, no, I don't know if we talked about this before, but basically, the only time that I really leave the apartment uh, to to like rub my face against the sandpaper that is the outside world is when I go to Whole Foods, right? Like, they have excellent
0: sandwiches there, bro.
7: Oh yeah, they have a great deli if it's open. You know, if they can get staff for it. And uh, I go to Whole Foods, right, and as soon as I get through the door, right, I go to a new Whole Foods, a new one that I was talking about, just opened, you know, brand new Jeff Bezos masterpiece, you know, finely appointed, high ceilings, brightly lit, beautiful place, right? I go through the little, uh, the, uh, the 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 double doors, you know, the automatic doors, and the first thing I'm presented with is this, like, display with mangoes right? They've got a oh, bunch I of... I love
0: mangoes, yeah.
7: Yellow mangoes, right? Mm. And it just so happens, they're, on, they're in season, they're on sale, it's five for $4.50. And they have, have them all in little plastic bags, right? Great deal. Each plastic bag has five mangoes, right? And every time I go in there, anytime there's any just now, this just happens to be this particular time. But this is when I finally connected the whole pattern. There's always a Chinese woman, right? Rifling around through each bag and pulling out the best mangoes, right? And putting the best mangoes in her bag and then taking out the sort of slightly off ones and putting them in other bags. So she gets the cream of the crop, the cream of the cream of the crop of mangoes all go in her bag. And like everyone else is left with the dregs, you know? And I see this, and there's no recognition on her part that this is possibly rude, you know? And this is just unpolite. And I see this over and over and over again, and I'm just so, like, uh, compelled to say something. But I just don't. I sit on it, and I swallow it, and I just grab my bag of some subpar mangoes and go on my way. Now, is this a failing on my part? Should I be, like, um, speaking up for the general public for this part or is she got her own in-group that she cares about the rest of us are just out group dwellers who can just deal they can endure what they must with the subpar mangoes is this was she just expressing a real fundamental truth of life
0: i, I think you should uh, speak up as long as there's not someone you know who's who's deadly you know attached to her yeah definitely speak up and say hey that's unacceptable.
7: It's like does she go to bed at night thinking, like, just reviewing in her mind like, Oh, I should've got that one and not this one, you know? Does she like, replay this, this whole thing? It's like I'm dealing with somebody I like, thought of doing this is so alien from my mind, Luke, that I can't even like put myself in the same headspace that she's in. Well I
0: don't know guess what? Different this is no, this is important different people have different rules. And so you need to put a little bit of effort in and you can get into her rule book. Her rule book is that she's out for the best mega as possible. And she's not going to allow social conventions by, by the white man to get in her way. So she's looking out for a family, but every, everybody's got different rules. So it just takes a little bit of effort to understand what someone else's rule book is. I mean I saw a homeless man taking a dump on the street. <laughs> and like he had he had a different rule book.
2: Mm.
7: Well I think I think I don't think that you are directly comparable.
0: <laughs> I I'm making the point like Vladimir Putin has a different rule book, all right? He, in his rule book it's it's A okay to invade Ukraine.
7: Mm-hmm because he's looking out for his in-group he's group. looking out for his group Ukraine's a bunch of fresh mangoes and he wants them exactly <laughs> it's so clear now Luke thank you alright Luke uh, I guess I'll let you go on that one I gotta take a bath see if I can get rid of some of this stiffness
0: blessings blessings to Elliot Blatt alright thanks all okay back. take care man
2: In the last year and a half, the Biden administration has welcomed millions of illegal migrants, foreign nationals with no right to be here, to sweep over our border whenever they want. Once they've arrived, the White House has sent many of them to places all over the country, states like New York and Florida. A lot of these foreign nationals of Texas, and finally, the state has decided to try and stop it. Fox's Lucas Tomlinson has the story for us
8: tonight. Hey, Lucas. Hey, Tucker, last week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said he would send illegal immigrants right here to the nation's capital. The first bus arrived just after 8 a.m. earlier today. 23 illegal immigrants stepped off that chartered bus paid for by the Texas taxpayer. 19 men, four women, disembarked and two small children were among the nearly two dozen who left Del Rio Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. One of the private security contractors told me they drove the 1,700 miles to the nation's capital without stopping to spend the night in a hotel. None of the migrants were from Mexico, some were from Nicaragua, and had family waiting for them where the bus pulled up just a few blocks from the U.S. Capitol. I spoke to a Another group from Venezuela who said they want to go to Miami next. One migrant described his journey. De donde es? Venezuela. 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 Una vez más. Este
2: cruzamos desde Colombia para la selva del Darién. Luego cruzamos a Panamá. De Panamá, Costa Rica, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Nicaragua, Honduras, Honduras, Guatemala, Guatemala, México.
8: Governor Abbott blamed the White House for dropping off illegal migrants in towns across Texas. Texas is providing charter buses to send
0: these illegal immigrants who have been dropped off by the Biden administration to Washington, D.C. We are sending them to the United States Capitol where the Biden
6: administration will be able to more immediately address the needs of the people that they are allowing to come across our border.
8: The governor's office says another bus is already making its way up here in the nation's capital. Tucker. Lucas Thomas and Forstein, thanks so much for that.
2: So moving a bus of 23 illegal aliens into Washington, D.C., it's like it's almost like a meme. Why not just move them back to the countries they came from? Why not take the Texas National Guard and keep them from coming into our country? Oh, that's too hard. But Texas is apparently taking some steps to slow the massive surge of migration about to hit this country. It's about to get even bigger. Todd Bensman is sort of piece about what Texas is doing. He's the author of America's Border War. He's also a senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. He joins us tonight. Todd, thanks so much for coming on. Pardon my skepticism about this uh, theater going on. Um, it's greatly frustrating to people in other parts of the country that Texas hasn't just shut down its own border, since it always talks about how it's a country. But the state is doing something, you say, to slow this border surge. What is it doing?
5: Right. Well, I agree. I think that the uh, busing of migrants to Washington, D.C. is a bit of a sideshow to the main (laughs) event, which is that the Abbott administration is shutting down trade with Mexico. They're saying that they're doing it with enhanced safety inspections at the border at all these, the the biggest ports of entry in America, actually, for trucking, Laredo, and also um, FAR and El Paso as well, just shutting those bridges down with inspections, essentially. Uh, And they won't say exactly uh, what I think they want to say, which is, we're going to do this to you, Mexico, until you clean up your side of the border of the mass migration that's coming. Now, it's it, to me it seems like it's a leverage point. I think that they that they are uh, hoping to get the Biden administration and the Mexican governors to respond uh, to this. It is proving to be a major muscle that the Texas that the state of Texas is able to flex. And they have a a deal now uh, reportedly with the governor of Nuevo León, who is they're going to announce shortly some kind of a deal where we in Texas lift this embargo on our side in exchange for border security on their side. Very interesting play. I've never seen a state be able to force an issue like this.
2: I mean, the, pr- the problem is that Mexican governors and the Biden administration share a common contempt for America's current population and, and, and want to change it. So, I mean, it's hard to see how this moves them to action. We're sending all these guns to protect Ukraine's border. Why wouldn't we do the same in Texas to protect the American border? Why wouldn't Governor Abbott do that? I, I honestly am confused.
5: Well, uh, you know, listen, the state of Texas has got Operation Lone Star. They've spent close to $4 billion on, uh, you know, plugging the holes in the line left by Border Patrol uh, off doing processing duty and babysitting and bringing, uh, you know, water to migrants while we're processing them in. Uh, so they're not out there doing drug uh, interdiction and that sort of thing. And I think to, to the extent that, that the state can uh, do something they are. But ultimately, the state of Texas, if they were to round up migrants and bring them to the international bridge and try to drop them off, they would be stopped by the Biden administration's CBP blue uniforms on the bridges. You, you couldn't, I don't think that they can get past our own people to the midway point of the bridge. And that's yeah. really, I think, ultimately what the problem is
2: it will be interesting to see who wins that fight. Um, but it'd be nice to have a fight because the country is disappearing. So maybe maybe it's worth having. I don't know. Todd Bensman, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Appreciate Todd. It. Thanks, Thank man.
0: You. Thank you.
2: So the state of California is a great place, despite what they tell you. Unfortunately, it's gotten dirty and disorganized and dangerous under Gavin Newsom. So a frequent guest on this show has just announced that he's running for governor of California against Newsom. In the-
0: okay, let's get back to that fantastic, fascinating Stephen Turner essay on uh, how do you explain th- these uh, different different crime rates without uh, casting aspersions? How do, we, you know, how, how do we recognize the humanity and welcome into our moral community people and groups who commit vast rates of crime? So Michelle Alexander wrote an account of mass incarceration as a new Jim Crow. She says this is a result of the war on drugs. It's racist over-policing. Right, it's consistent with the invariance thesis itself. Now, what the hell does the word invariance mean? So invariance definition, the property remaining unchanged, regardless of changes in the condition of measurement. So the area of a surface remains unchanged if the surface is rotated in space. Thus, the area exhibits rotational invariance. Okay, third methodological issue regards correlation analysis requires a single population with a normal distribution. Statistically, blacks and whites are from the point of view of the correlations within each group, different populations with different causal processes. So to take a meta-analysis, summarizing many studies, they show that major predictors differ for the two groups. So, interracial inequality affects rates of violence among whites, but not among blacks. Absolute deprivation influences white, but not black killings. Greater economic well-being significantly reduces robbery rates for whites, but has no influence on rates for African Americans. Educational attainment is positively associated with crime rates for blacks during times of increasing black income inequality. By contrast, increased educational attainment reduces crime among whites, But only during periods of decreasing white income inequality so there are a whole variety of other differences the family structure has a large discrepant effect the effect of a female headed household on robbery is three times larger for blacks than for whites the youth increased per capita income reduces crime rates for whites but not for blacks welfare payments affect robbery rates for blacks but not for whites So these findings undermine the racial invariance thesis and the policy prescriptions based on it. Another supplementary line of argument appealing to racial disparities of treatment holds that crime in general, is not different between the races, but that the morally reprehensible crimes typical of white people, so crimes of economic exploitation, are not treated as such by the system for uniform crime reporting, so that only the crimes characteristic of black people are represented and nor are they punished in the same way. So this indicts the criminal justice system itself as racially oppressive, since it is designed in such a way as to commit white people crimes and punish black people crimes. So many black sociologists reject the project of comparison of crime rates itself. African-American criminologists generally are frustrated by their white counterparts insisting on using available crime data show that African-Americans are disproportionately involved in crime. They argue that is unprofessional to make such an allegation because the concept of disproportionality as employed by many white criminologists is based on the groundless assumption that contribution of African-Americans to the total population should somehow influence their contribution in other areas. So the assumption would be indeed be groundless if we accepted racial variance. So we can accept that there are different mechanisms operating in different populations and determine what these mechanisms might be and how they relate to crime without excusing it. Then this produces a new explanatory problem. How do we account for the difference in causal mechanisms between groups? So we have two basic options. There might be cultural explanations, so a full range of social practices, interpersonal relations, social dynamics, local norms, institutional forms, the distinctive mechanisms operating in each population, or there might be universal Psychological mechanisms with distinctive psychological causes operating only in and on the target population. So these options are not mutually exclusive. If you frame culture as a disabling condition, right, might be done as a source of the lack of self-control, which is the proximate cause of crime, as Linda Godfreytson noted. So this is a universal psychological phenomenon activated in particular cultural settings. But cultural explanations of either type raise problems over blame for reasons that go to the heart of the problem of excuses. So cultural explanations of backwardness have a long history completely apart from the issue of race. So we have many studies showing how cultural patterns perpetuate poverty and resist reform. And so this way we can not blame individuals, we can blame cultures or subcultures. Now, these Accounts have been a flashpoint for issues of blame. The newest generation of scholars of poverty have distanced themselves from this approach. So the earliest scholars repeatedly blamed the victims for their problems because they seemed to imply that people might cease to be poor if they changed their culture. So the significance of the issue of blaming the victim in relation to culture is complex and ambiguous. They depend on issues of capacity and individual agencies. Do cultures incapacitate or are individuals incapable of thinking beyond and changing their culture? If not, are they responsible for changing themselves? So should, uh, Aristotle have denounced slavery? So for many thinkers, being enlightened includes extending one's sense of empathy to others and respecting their differences with an expectation that a higher level of enlightenment will come out of this extension of respect. Think of all the respect I give to you, you give to me, and we're just sitting here respecting each other and, and, uh, enjoying radical love and inclusion. But uh, why didn't Aristotle denounce slavery? Then you could argue from the point of view of cultural relativism, denying that any culture is better than any other culture. Right. What we don't want to say is that people might cease to be poor if they change themselves or their culture, because that would be blaming the victim but denying that if people changed that they may no no longer be poor, this would imply the incapacity incapacity of group members to transcend and reform their own culture. If we regard the incapacitation produced by culture as only partial, so we're supposed to do in some cases, and if we regard, say, black people as moral agents with specific burdens, which they are responsible for overcoming, analogous to the alcoholic or drug addict, right? Maybe we can get somewhere. That So we have burdens, we make excuses to a limited extent, just as we do for addicts and alcoholics, but we also impose a responsibility to change. So with cultural explanations for black crime, if we accept it as a feature of black culture, then it is not an absolution, it is a mark of shame. It's an absolution for and by whites. So complete incapacitation would excuse criminal behavior by treating it as the product of something equivalent to mental derangement. So the ultimate in cultural relativism imagines people are imprisoned by their culture and we must take an objective attitude towards them, they're alien subjects, and we must tolerate without condemning. We assume black people's agency and that any incapacity produced by culture is only partial. We can then ask what kinds of responsibilities to change do they have. So those lower class men who are least likely to participate in mainstream institutions and activities and who are the most socially impotent men in America appear to be the most overtly concerned with presenting themselves as free from external interference. I mean, this sounds like large swaths of the black community and large swaths of the dissident right. All right. So you've got lower class men, the least likely to participate in mainstream institutions and activities who are the most socially impotent men in America, like think of the viewers of Millennial Woes, right? Lower class men, least likely to participate in mainstream institutions and activities, the most socially impotent men in America, but the men who are most overtly concerned with presenting themselves as free from external interference. So they're not going to get vaccinated. They're not going to wear a mask, right? They're they're strong, free, and proud. So this type of self-affirmation it's understandable as a psychological response to an environment filled with others behaving similarly, and this produces a particular kind of street crime. It produces fighting. So there's an ideology that goes along with the widespread fighting. So here's, here's a quote from uh, The Street. He's a man, and I'm a man, and I don't take no shit like that. Right? That's how street corner men tend to defend or explain their fighting responses. So this is a neutralization technique in which the offender justifies his delinquent or criminal behavior by defining it as a form of rightful retaliation or punishment. So this fits with the idea that expressive violence is a form of self-help in which justice is done to a person who ha- deserves injury. So the response evinces a certain morality, compulsive masculinity. Uh, This tends to be resistant to policy changes that would want to transform the individuals in the direction desired by a community, which would mean the orders and instructions of others, you'd follow them in a degree of cooperation with others, that would mean some degree of surrender of autonomy. Now, some forms of cultural incapacitation can be overcome intellectually by enlightenment. Now, the victim of compulsive masculinity, however, is in the grip of a compulsion. But it's not a matter of a learned disposition that can be unlearned. It is continually reinforced by the person's social experience, which requires self-defense and the establishment of a reputation for a capacity to take revenge under the morality of the Hobbesian state of nature. So correcting this is not simply a matter of persuasion leading to a better way of act. To act, change would require change in the social experiences of the person that compel the kinds of responses that the term describes. So if we want to take the obligation to transcend one's culture seriously, consider the person on whom it is being imposed capable of doing so, then failure to do so is a matter of personal responsibility. Now, moral exemplars are likely to have a stronger effect on ordinary members of the community. So there's been a long tradition in sociology that has emphasized the importance of black role models, black exemplars. You need to show successful middle-class black people leave the ghetto. Notice that like, white people don't have leaders, Jews don't have leaders, uh, Asian Americans, Chinese Americans don't have leaders. It's uh, like only uh, blacks who have you know, black leaders. You don't even hear about Mexican American leaders. Now, elites may take on this responsibility, but their ability to act is limited. So cultural explanations... Excuse only partially, every culture can be transformed in a more enlightened direction, but every culture provides obstacles to its transformation. So cultural explanations for high rates of black crime preserve some sense of agency and personal responsibility. What about more radical attempts to account for black crime? What about the idea of black responsibility for black crime? So denial of victim narratives come close to a justification that has significant currency in black culture, is deeply rooted in black resentment and embodied politically in the reparations movement. It's a sense that justice requires that white people in general must pay for injuries inflicted on black people, regardless of the source and the actual causes of these injuries. This resentment can be justified. And if we can use it to explain black crime, then we would have accomplished three things, explanation, absolution, and assigning full blame to outsiders. And there's a long history of this type of argument. Classic example is the 1968 book, Black Rage. You have two psychiatrists here arguing that the treatment of blacks and the consequent internalization of negative attitudes towards blacks has caused black self-hatred. In the face of the hopelessness of righting this wrong by force, the, the black identifies with his oppressor psychologically from this new psychologically white position. He then turns on black people with hostility and aggression, and he hates blacks, and among blacks he hates himself. So this account has two virtues. It accounts for black crime against blacks, and it shifts the blame to white oppressors. But it does reduce the black male to a psychologically damaged person whose self-hatred makes him unable to act as a member of the moral community. The term rage is not accidental. It captures the abnormality of this response, places it beyond normal rationality, and into the realm of the psychiatric wherein people become objects. So this was developed in the 1960s, but it wasn't until the 1980s that black rage became a mainstream criminological explanation for the increased crime rate. So crime began to increase markedly when blacks no longer needed to fear whites after the passage of civil rights legislation in the 1960s. So some of them young black males primarily could then express directly and physically a rage and a desire to prove one's manhood the formally could be expressed only indirectly and verbally. So if racially based self-hatred was produced by fear, removing this fear should have had the effect of reducing self-hatred, and also hatred of members of the same race, and therefore rage. But there are other sources of rage against white people. By adding the desire to prove one's manhood, the core of the compulsive masculinity theory, to sheer rage against injustice and the new lack of fear, one had an account of black crime, There's also an explanation of black crime against black victims, but it was a bit of a hodgepodge that lacked the clear causal linkages of the original black rage argument. But it reaffirmed the thought that black crime involved a psychologically anomalous state akin to madness, which is itself a kind of absolution. Now, in more recent sociological literature, we have a variant on this that produces a distinctive strategy of absolution, So it provides an explanation of black male violence rooted in culture in which the problem of the culture is not only admitted but emphasized, but then following the basic pattern of race-neutral, condition-dependent, subculture approaches is explained as a reaction to extreme outside circumstances, circumstances for which blame can be assigned, assigned to white people. So the causes are universal, but the extreme circumstances are unique to the black experience. So here's a typical example of this type of reasoning. So drawing on strain and social learning theories, we conceptualize interpersonal racial discrimination as a highly stressful experience. Think about all those articles talking about how Black people feel so tired in America, that this is a form of victimization. It is cumulative in effect, so it's a form of PTSD, and it increases the risk of crime by producing distress and shaping cognitive frames about the way the world works. So the causal agent is extreme racial discrimination, which produces distress, imparts messages about unfairness of the social system, and shapes how people think. So the unique black experience that produce distress of this kind are microaggressions, or interpersonal experiences that humiliate and demean. Think about the microaggressions that uh, this gentleman, the subway terrorist, must have suffered—like he, he probably experienced something that was humiliating, demeaning. Maybe he had negative interpersonal experiences with the police, and maybe this developed in him a legal cynicism. So maybe the contemporary day-to-day negative experiences that African Americans personally or vicariously have with our criminal justice system causes them to be cynical of the criminal justice system and maybe this racialized legal cynicism is transmitted across generation generations because african americans continue to personally vicariously experience profound racist encounters with the criminal justice system on a daily basis such as stop and frisk driving while black or shot while walking away so maybe the racialized legal cynicism among african americans results from their incomparable grounded lived experiences with what it means to be a black person living in a systemically racist society. So maybe the more blacks perceive personal or vicarious forms of racial injustice, the more likely they are to rebel and to offend. But this line of argument has a familiar flaw. It does not solve the problem of why discrimination by whites would produce crime by blacks against blacks. Now, in the 1934 book by Charles Johnson, Shadow of the Plantation, he talks about fatalism in recounting deaths in the family by violence. What explains the frequency of violence itself? So, Charles Johnson adds an explanation of crime which connects to legal cynicism established in the 1996 book, The, The Polish Peasant. So the courts are outside the Polish peasant scheme of life. Adjustment of relations in the past has been very largely the province of the white planter. So such unanimity of sentiment on law as exists is a common disposition to remain as far as possible out of contact with the courts, whether as plaintiff or accused. So differences tend to be settled on a personal and face-to-face basis, and this accounts for the prevalence of weapons of defense. So The breakdown of social control allows crime. But this is an excuse Does not relativize the situation to deny agency and responsibility. So, overcoming disorder is at least in part the responsibility of the community. So, it's not legal cynicism alone that is the cause of crime. Social control is the variable. So, the kind of excuse which keeps the person in the moral community and does not demean them remains elusive. Their prediction is not an explanation. Excuse requires explanation. Mechanisms relating social facts to crime are poorly understood in general. Proposed theories of black offending are particularly complex. At the heart of the empirical issues are the problems of confounding and causal arrow ambiguity. Does the fact of crime produce the negative results of relative poverty, discrimination, unemployment, police oppression? Or are these the causes of crime? Their absolution on the grounds of incapacitation makes a person or a group into an object object of pity. They are held to be something other than responsible. They are less than full agents. This is the price of absolution. The thesis that blacks are uniquely afflicted and disabled by discrimination, the black rage thesis and its more recent variants, acknowledges the anomalous character of black crime and finds a unique unique cause, overwhelming anti-black racism. But this then makes all blacks not only victims, but victims so harmed, harmed by discrimination that they too are beyond responsibility and therefore not for members of the moral community. So we reject classifying black people as so mentally compromised by racism that they are no longer properly regarded as moral agents, then we cannot regard them from the participatory point of view. So do we want to reject blaming the victim? So the victims in this case are black people generally and those who are most sensitive to injustice specifically. And they are, according to this point of view, so cognitively damaged by racism that they go out and commit crimes. They are agents, but abnormal ones whose incapacities absolve them. They are victims because they are governed by the compulsion of the alternative worldview imposed on them by their experience of racism and injustice. So, black crime is no different from what white crime would be if the conditions for whites were the same. So, the blame for black crime falls to those who control the conditions. So, social responsibility is different from individual responsibility, but there are parallels. Criminals can take responsibility for self stigmatization. Social responsibility in the sense of taking responsibility for one's group requires the power to act as an agent and to act as an agent for the community. So a sense of collective responsibility for the behavior of blacks and their uplift has in fact traditionally been an issue within the black community. Cultural change has often been a part of the uplift. Change in the community is a responsibility that black police and participants in the justice system, elites and religious leaders have often accepted. They accepted this responsibility because they believed that they had agency, that they could make their own lives. And on the basis of the belief that there are things that only blacks can do for blacks, combined with an obligation to rescue and a special relation, solidarity with other blacks creates a special obligation. So that's the end of uh, this Stephen Turner essay. Here's the great Stephen Turner. Here he's speaking against democratic theory. ...social
10: part, which promised all kinds of uh, uh, equality without actually uh, guaranteeing. So, uh, paradoxically, all of these political thinkers think of themselves as defenders of social democracy. Real democracy is social democracy. and uh, um, But social democracy is also not socialism. So that the odd thing that happens here historically is that uh, um, the welfare states that actually occurred were purely a historical accident. Bismarck, who uh, credit as the author of The Welfare State, he was certainly no socialist, and his idea was basically you give people a stake in the system, they're not going to revolt. So you guarantee a bunch of things for them health care, uh, old age pensions, and so forth, uh, they're going to uh, acquiesce. And um, uh, nobody uh, gave a philosophical justification of that particular deal. So once the uh, welfare states of the, uh, and the other part of the story is that when socialist parties actually came into power in Europe, it was especially obvious in the case of Léon Blum in France. Um, the expectations of the workers were that immediately socialism would follow and paradise would uh, follow immediately after socialism. And of course, Bloom uh, knew perfectly well that this, even going in that direction, even if he knew what the direction was, would cause a civil war, so he didn't go there. But where they did go was more extensive welfare uh, provision. In Britain, the story is slightly uh, different, but uh, uh, there, um, again, it was uh, closely related to the sacrifices of the war and the idea that there was an obligation to the working class and um, um, also the idea that uh, actually uh, taking the money from the rich and giving it to the poor wouldn't really help that much because the rich didn't really have that much money. It might help a little bit, but not enough. So the idea, which uh, Tawney uh, promoted, was that the state would provide a lot of services, and that would be the, the uh, contribution to the welfare state. So that was something that also doesn't have any justification in socialist theory. It's not socialism. It's something else. And uh, So what we had was this accidental product of history, a new kind of... Uh,
0: okay what is wrong with social science and how to fix it reflections after reading 2,578 papers by alvaro de menard so he publishes this september 11 2020 says over the past year i skimmed through 2,578 social science papers spending about 2.5 minutes on each one this is due to my participation in replication markets all right its goal is to evaluate the reliability of social science research. So the studies were sourced from all social science disciplines, economics, psychology, sociology, management, that were published between 2009 and 2018. So most of the sample came from the post-replication crisis era. The average replication probability in the market was 54%. Criticizing bad science from an abstract 10,000-foot view is pleasant. You hear about some stuff that doesn't replicate, some methodologies that are silly. They should improve their methods. Diving into the sea of trash that is social science gives you a more tangible perspective, a more visceral revulsion, even a sense of Lovecraftian awe, at the sheer magnitude of it all. It's a vast landfill, talking about social science research here. A great agglomeration of garbage extending as far as the eye can see. So effluvious waves, waves of trash crashing and throwing up a foul foam. As you walk up to the diving platform, the deformed attendant hands you a pair of flippers. Noticing your reticence, he gives you a subtle nod as if to say, come on then, jump in. So prediction markets work well because predicting replication is easy. There's no need for a deep dive into the statistical methodology or rigorous examination of the data. There's no need to scrutinize esoteric theories for subtle errors. These papers have obvious surface level problems. So there's a popular belief that weak studies the result of unconscious biases leading researchers down a garden of forking paths. So given enough researcher degrees of freedom, even the most punctilious investigator can be misled. However, I find this belief impossible to accept. The brain is a credulous piece of meat, but there are limits to self-delusion. Most of them have to know. It is understandable to be led down the garden of forking paths while producing the research. When the paper is done, you give it a final read over. you will surely notice that uh, there's no reason to believe that your research is going to replicate. So it takes more than a subtle unconscious bias to believe you have found something real. And even if the authors really are misled by the forking paths, what are the editors and the reviewers doing? We're supposed to believe they are all gullible rubes. People within the academy, people pretty much in any group, do not want to rock the boat. They still have to attend the conferences, secure the grants, publish in the journals, show up at the faculty meetings. All these things depend on their peers. When criticizing bad research, it's easier for everyone to blame the forking paths rather than the person walking them, and there is no need for uncomfortable unpleasantries. The fraudster can admit without much of a hit to their reputation that indeed they were misled by that. Dastardly guard, really through no fault of their own whatsoever, which point their colleagues on Twitter will applaud and say, Ah, good on you. You handled this tough situation with such exquisite virtue. This is how progress happens. Hip, hip, hurrah. What a ridiculous charade. Even when they do accuse someone of wrongdoing, they use terms like questionable research practices. How about questionable euphemism practices? And they measure a dozen things and only pick their outcome variable at the end. Santoshi. Santoshi, who used to publish in psychology Journal, Santoshi Sakawara, whatever, in London, he's he, he does this, right? And you only pick the outcome variable at the end. That's not the garden of forking paths. That's the greenhouse of fraud. And you do a correlational analysis, but give policy implications. So if you're doing a causal one, you're not walking around the garden, you're doing the landscaping of forking paths. And they take a continuous variable, arbitrarily bin it to do subgroup analysis. So when they add an ad hoc quadratic term to their regression, they're fertilizing the garden of forking paths. Bottom line is, a random schmuck with zero domain expertise like me can predict what will replicate, and so can scientists who have spent half their lives studying this stuff, but they sure don't act like it. So studies that replicate are cited at the same rate as studies that do not. Publishing your own weak papers is one thing, but citing other people's weak papers, that seems implausible. Even after retraction, the vast majority of citations are positive of non-replicating papers. And positive citations continue for decades after retraction. So it comes down to Hanlon's razor. Either malice, they know which results are likely false, but cite them anyway. Or two, stupidity. They can't tell which papers will replicate, even though it's easy. How do they not know? I, an idiot with no relevant credentials or knowledge, can accurately determine good research from bad. But all the tenured experts cannot. How can they not tell which papers are retracted? The most plausible explanation might be scientists don't read the papers they cite, which would involve both malice and stupidity. So... One, one paper mentions that as many as 80% of authors citing a paper have not read the original. Once the paper is out there, nobody bothers to check it, even though they know there's a 50, 50 chance it's false. So the academic system does not allocate citations to true claims. This is bad, not only for the direct effect of basing further research on false results, but it distorts the incentive scientists face. Nobody cited weak studies. We wouldn't have so many of them. Rewarding impact without regard for the truth leads to disaster. Unfortunately, there are no academic journals with strict quality standards. Now, you might expect that the top-ranking journals would be full of studies that are highly likely to replicate, and the low-ranking journals would be filled with lousy studies. Not so. Journal status and quality are not well correlated. There is no association between statistical power and impact factor. Journals with higher impact factor have more papers with erroneous values. Even the creme de la creme of economics journals barely manage a two-thirds expected replication rate. The journal reputation acts as a cloak for bad research. For most journals, the question of whether the results of a paper are true is a matter of secondary importance. We model journals as wanting to maximize impact, and this is hardly surprising. Citation counts are not related to truth. Scientists were more careful about what they cited than journals would be more careful about what they publish. Do You ever wonder what an extra enhanced hands-on one-on-one Alexander lesson with Luke Ford might cost? <laughs> I frequently encountered the notion that after the replication crisis hit, there was some sort of great improvement in the social sciences. The people wouldn't even dream publishing studies based on 23 undergraduates anymore. Stuart Ritchie's new book praises psychologists for developing systematic ways to address the flaws in their discipline. In reality, there has been no discernible movement. A little bit more here from Stephen Toto. Without
10: any big philosophical justification, so it became the job of uh, democratic theory to give this kind of uh, justification. The problem with the, the whole project of democratic theory is um, pretty straightforward. It's anti-democratic. So the whole point of democratic theory is to complain about actually existing democracy. That's what makes it uh, critical. And it has to be something that, therefore, the people in those actually existing democracies using the voting mechanisms that they actually have did not choose. Um, Now, um
0: So you may be asking, what is the replication crisis?
4: Hi, I'm Adrienne Hill and welcome back to Crash Course Statistics. You might have heard that power posing affects how powerful you feel and can change hormone levels. If it does, we'd expect to see that effect over and over and over, study after study. And it would be pretty disappointing if one study concludes that eating carrots improves your vision. And then, after you rush to sign up for monthly carrot deliveries, five similar studies find no evidence that munching carrots is good for your eyes. To make sure that an experimental result is sound, we want to replicate the findings. Results need to be confirmed. Which is why replication, rerunning studies to confirm results, and reproducible analysis, the ability for other scientists to repeat the analyses you did on your data, are essential in science. These issues affect basically every field, from artificial intelligence research, to social science. A few years ago, scientists at a biotech company called Amgen decided to try to replicate more than 50 big deal cancer treatment studies. These were studies that had been published in respected journals, and the Amgen scientists were only able to replicate the original results 11% of the time. In another reproducibility study, a group of 270 scientists reran 100 psychology studies that had been published in 2008 in top-notch journals. Fewer than half of the published results were replicated. Stanford researcher Dr. Johnny Anides has claimed that false findings may be the majority, or even the vast majority, of published research claims. The journal Nature published a survey a few years back and asked researchers if they thought there was a reproducibility crisis in science. 52% called it a significant crisis. Another 38% called it a slight crisis, and 90% of researchers thinking that they have some a crisis on their hands is a big deal. The replicability crisis has been used in political debates to undermine scientific research. Political activists, especially those that hold opinions that run counter to scientific research, have jumped on the problem of replicability as a way to discredit science more broadly. And when a medical study winds up with invalid conclusions, researchers could head down the wrong path, people could get misguided treatments based on faulty conclusions, they could get sicker even, and a whole lot of money could be wasted researching and providing those treatments. So what's causing science's replication problem? There are a lot of answers. Some of them involve unscrupulous researchers, researchers that are more concerned with attention and publishing in splashy headlines than good science, here we're talking about fraud, falsified data, intentional p hacking, statistical evildoers. But many reasons scientific studies aren't replicable are less nefarious. One issue related to replication, redoing studies, is reproducibility of the analyses in a paper. There's not always one prescribed way of analyzing a data set. A researcher named Brian Nozick and his team invited 29 groups of researchers to analyze the same data set, an attempt to answer whether or not soccer referees give more red cards to dark-skinned players than light-skinned ones. Seems simple enough. These researchers were all working with the same data, but they ran different tests. Some used linear regression, some went with Bayesian models. And it's not just the models that the researchers could have differed on. You could also have freedom to exclude outliers or look at different groups. Twenty of the groups found a statistically significant relationship between skin color and red cards. Nine groups didn't. The point, says researchers, is that no one analysis is going to find the answer. The singular truth. When researchers aren't clear about how they analyze their data, from which data points they excluded to the exact model they ran, it can make it hard for someone to reproduce their results even if they had the same data. Good papers will have detailed descriptions of researchers' methods. When you replicate a study, you usually know what model the researcher used, or you can ask. But if scientists aren't clear or consistent about this, it just puts another roadblock in the way of good replication. There are other reasons for the replicability crisis. Some researchers and the folks who report on scientific research don't fully understand p-values. They make claims that statistical evidence doesn't support. Back in 2016, the American Statistical Association released a statement meant to help researchers understand and use p-values better. It was, reportedly, the first time the 170-plus year-old organization made this type of explicit recommendations. Among the guidelines the Statistical Association published, scientific conclusions and business or policy decisions should not be based only on whether a p-value passes a specific threshold. And a p-value or statistical significance does not measure the size of an effect or the importance of a result. P-values need to be understood in context. A significant result doesn't mean we ought to all rush out and change what we're doing. But if you like carrots, go ahead, keep eating them. Another reason science produces results that can't be reproduced is that published studies have a bias toward overestimating effects, in part because they were published because they had a low p-value. Some studies look promising and then aren't reproducible because they were based on a fluke. When the study is repeated, the fluke doesn't repeat itself. The website 538 offers up this explanation. Say you were looking at the relationship of height and college majors. You gather up your data, including a class of math majors with a few exceptionally tall kids and a class of philosophy majors with an unusually short student. When you compare the averages, haha, <laughs> look at that! Math majors are taller than philosophy majors. You have statistically significant results. But when you repeat the study, those differences disappear. There's regression to the mean, which gives you a more accurate picture of pretty similar average heights of each major and nothing all that interesting to write about, except a correction to your first paper. Small sample sizes also get blamed. The fewer subjects in a study, the more likely you get skewed and unreplicable results. DFTBAQ my friends, even when your results make sense, DFTBAQ. So where can researchers start improving the process to help solve this reproducibility crisis? For one, researchers argue they need to do a whole lot more replication. Replication allows us to weed out false significant events, the flukes and the too-good-to-be-true effects that unfortunately make great headlines. We need to get rid of the idea that one significant test is solid proof of anything. It isn't. In fact, we need to get rid of the idea that one significant test is even great evidence of anything. But replication is expensive, and it's not as sexy as making a new discovery. It doesn't attract the same media attention, institutional acclaim, or funder.
0: Okay, let's go back to what the heck is wrong with the social sciences. So everyone is complicit. Authors are just one small cog in the vast machine of scientific production this stuff to be financed generated published and rewarded requires the complicity of funding agencies journal editors peer reviewers and hiring and tenure committees given the current structures of the machine the funding agencies are to blame but i was just following the incentives and they go so far editors and reviewers don't actually need to accept these blatantly bad papers journals and universities certainly can't blame the incentives when they stand behind fraudsters to the bitter end paolo macchiarini left a trail of dead patients, but was protected for years by his university. Andrew Wakefield's famously fraudulent autism MMR study took 12 years to retract. Even when the author of a paper admits the results were entirely based on error, journals still weren't retract. Elizabeth Bick documents her attempts to report fraud to journals. It looks like this. The editor-in-chief of Neuroscience Letters, Yale's Stephen G. Waxman, never replied to my email. The journal had a new publisher, so I wrote to both current editors-in-chief. They never replied to my email. Two papers from this set had been published in Wiley Journals, Gerontology and Periodontology. The editor-in-chief of the Journal of Periodontology never replied to my email. None of the four associate editors of that journal replied to my email either. The editor-in-chief of Gerontology never replied to my email. Even when they do take action, journals will often let scientists correct Faked figures, instead of retracting the paper, the rate of retraction is about 0.04%. It obviously should be much higher. Even after being caught for outright fraud, about half of the offenders are allowed to keep working. They've received over $123 million in federal funding for their post-misconduct research efforts. And just because a paper replicates doesn't mean it's good, right? A replication of a badly designed study is still badly designed. Suppose you're a social scientist. You notice that wet pavements tend to be related to umbrella usage. Find the correlation is bulletproof. You publish the paper. Try to sneak in some causal language. Rain is never mentioned. Yes, someone repeats your study. They will get a significant result every time. So a large proportion of the papers that successfully replicate are still crap. Now, economists and education researchers tend to be relatively good most social scientists go through four years of undergrad, four to six years of PhD studies without ever encountering ideas like identification strategy, model, misspecification, omitted variable, reverse causality, or third cause. Maybe they know and they deliberately publish crap. Feels like nutrition and epidemiology are in an even worse state. Now, correlational studies can be useful, right? The choice of claim for replication, for some papers it is clear, Other papers make dozens of different claims, which are all equally important. There's the effect size. Should we interpret claims in social science as being about the magnitude of an effect or only about its direction? And a lot of the papers in the 85% plus chance to replicate range are just really obvious. Homeless students have lower test scores. Parental wealth predicts their children's wealth, that sort of thing. So of those papers that replicate, maybe only half of those are actually worthy. Now, the majority of journal articles are almost completely a-theoretical. Even if all the statistical p-hacking publication bias issues were fixed, we'd still be left with a ton of ad hoc hypotheses based on weird folk intuitions. How can science advance if there's no theoretical grounding, nothing that can be refuted or refined? A pile of facts does not make a progressive scientific field. Incidentally, how much peer-reviewed objective evidence is there to support claims of the Alexander Technique? There is a moderate amount. And there's probably a ton of uncourt frauds. So only about 1% of falsified and fabricated papers are retracted. So 99% of them are never retracted. So economics is good. So economics tops the charts in terms of expectations. It is by far the strongest field. It's got a two-thirds replication rate. When you read their papers, you get the sense that at least they're trying, just more than can be said of other fields. Unique weakness in economics is the frequent use of absurd instrumental variables. Evolutionary psychology is surprisingly bad. So most of the evolutionary psychology journals were just weak social psychology papers with an infinitesimally thin layer of evolutionary paint on top. Few people seem to take the evolutionary aspect seriously. And determination problems are particularly difficult in this field, and nobody seems to care. Education is surprisingly good. Education was expected to be the worst field, but it ended up being almost as strong as economics. Demography is good. Criminology should just be scrapped. Thought social psychology was bad. You ain't seen nothing yet. Other fields have a mix of good and bad papers, but criminology is a shocking outlier. Almost every single paper I read was awful. Even among the papers, highly likely to replicate is de rigueur to confuse correlation for causation. We compare criminology to education. The headline replication rates look similar, but the designs used in education are at least in principle capable of detecting the effects they're looking for. That's not the case in criminology. The net effect of criminology as a discipline is negative. To the extent the public policy is guided by these people, it is worse, just shameful. Marketing is a bit of a joke. Cognitive psychology, much worse than expected. Social psychology, just as expected. All the silly stuff you heard about is still going on. While blatant activism is rare in political science, there is a more subtle background ideological influence which affects the assumptions that political scientists make, the type of questions they ask, and how they go about testing them. The replication crisis did not begin in 2010. It began in the 1950s. So Sterling, 1959, analyzed psychological articles published between 1955 and 1956, noted that 97% of them rejected their null hypothesis found evidence of a huge publication bias, serious problem with false positives, compounded by the fact that results are seldom verified by independent replication. Nunley, 1960, noted various problems with null hypothesis testing, underpowered studies, over-reliance on student samples. Jacob Cohen, 1962 study, found that underpowered studies were a huge problem, especially those investigating small effects. So if we accept the diagnosis of general weakness of the studies, what treatment can be prescribed? Increased sample sizes. Paul Meal, 1967, highly insightful on problems with null hypothesis testing the social sciences, the crowd factor, lack of theory. Meal, 1970, brilliantly skewers the erroneous and common tactic of automatically controlling for confounders, observational designs without understanding the causal relations between the variables. Meal, 1990, is brutal, highlights a serious issue which make psychological theories uninterpretable. He covers low standards, pressure to publish, low power, low prior probabilities. He says a tremendous amount of taxpayer money goes down the drain in research that pseudo-tests theories in soft psychology, that it would be a material social advance as well as a reduction in intellectual pollution if we would quit engaging in this feckless enterprise. Rosenthal, 1979, covers publication bias and the problems it poses for meta-analysis. Only a few studies filed away could change the combined significant Resort to a non-significant one. 1981 paper presents experimental evidence on grant proposals. They find that luck plays a huge role as there is little agreement between reviewers. So There's a large gap between awareness of the problem and implementing policy to fix it. Tons of people doing this research and trying to repair the broken scientific process. While at the same time, journal editors won't retract blatantly fraudulent research. There's a history of government involvement generations of psychologists have come and gone and nothing has been done the only difference is that today we have a better sense of the scale of the problem the only ray of hope is that at least we have started doing a few replications but it's not fundamentally changing things replications reveal false positives they do nothing to prevent those false positives from being published in the first place Uh, Maybe we should stop citing bad research. Maybe we should read the papers that we cite. When doing peer review, we should reject claims that are likely to be false, and we should stop assuming good faith. And uh, we should provide financial incentives to universities and journals to police fraud. Maybe we should get rid of the journal system altogether. Maybe we should ignore citation counts. Maybe you should earmark at least 10% of funding for replication. Okay, let's get a little bit more from Stephen Turner.
10: Yeah, so you know, when you look at what, what kinds of regimes people actually choose, they're not such great choices, uh, but they're the ones that they, they chose. So uh, either you have to take away your democratic privilege to choose those things, or you have to accept that, well, maybe that's really what uh, democracy means for those people. Right? The, my favorite example of uh, how this problem comes up is uh, has, from these followers of Hegel who were uh, uh, trying themselves to develop a, a theory of political representation and uh, came up with the puzzle of okay, well, what does the representative represent? Well, he's got a constituency. But what is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to act in accordance with reason? Of course, because they're Hegelians. So there is this thing called reason. Uh, there's a standard there. And that's what the representative is supposed to, to act in accordance with. So why do they need representation at all if all they're going to do is act in accordance with reason? And indeed, why do you need democracy at all if you're just going to act in accordance with reason? Why do you even need consent? Because in a way, you can assume that people who don't consent are unreasonable and need to be uh, uh, changed anyway. So. Um, yeah, so democratic theory. So somebody actually articulated this, and Hans
0: Kelsen, in these, these two very long essays that were published in Ethics in uh, the early 50s. And his life- so Hans Kelsen was a theoretician of the law at the same time as uh, Carl Schmitt. Uh, Carl Schmitt and Hans Kelsen had a lot of arguments. So, yes, on Monday I was talking about the tradition of post-tradition. Terrific essay here by Stephen Turner. I didn't quite get to finish it. So we're talking about how the meaning of honor has changed over time. So at a small Toronto airport, there was an advertisement posted that read, you are precious cargo, not cattle. The animal rights activists protested, calling it insulting to cows. The ad was removed. So cows have honor claims. Cows can be dishonored and others will defend their honor. So honor has become democratized. We have changing attitudes towards animals. We have the idea of animal rights. And we have extended democratization of honor to cows. And we can find many other examples of novel application of honor-like notions, social movements demanding honor, such as plaques for blacks. We've got uh, all this uh, social science on recognition. There are new concepts of dignity. So post-traditionalism as a concept depends on the possibly illusory sense that something has fundamentally changed. Did people suddenly become aware in the 1960s that they had practices that they could reflect on and were therefore forced to either choose to abandon their rituals or to embrace them, both cases being forced to reflect and to choose, or is this a completely normal and continuous part of social life and always has been? So the concept of post-traditionalism may be appealing for reasons other than its cognitive, explanatory, and predictive power. Maybe it can be found in its performative implications. We can distinguish. Okay. Bloody hell, bloody Google's trying to kick me out of this call. All right. So we can love the idea of post-traditionalism because of its call for dialogue and respect. Dialogue is the fetish of the tradition of liberalism. This idea that we progress through dialogue fits with a suppressed and unacknowledged grand narrative to the effect that the various traditions of the world are mixtures of moral truth and error, that somehow the interaction of these traditions will bring about a purified universal rational good. So dialogue becomes the performative act commanded by the goal of progress with cosmopolitanism at its apex. So this echoes Herbert Spencer back in the 19th century who envisioned a future which religious authoritarianism would lose its grip and people would come to relate to one another as agents able to freely contract with one another and therefore to develop the trusting relations appropriate to the relation of contract. So this performative side of post-traditionalism offers this because it embraces the possibility that there can be no progress beyond minimal multicultural trust this is the case, tradition has disappeared by definition, not just in its role in people's lives. So there's a little essay there on the tradition of post-tradition. So I got an advanced peek at a paper on the challenge of democracy, law, administration, and theory in a world of divergent values. So democracy refers to the will of the people it's majoritarian procedure of lawmaking, leader selection. And it also comes with a significant administrative and judicial apparatus. But law and democracy are linked. Democracies produce decisions through legal procedures, and law is the means by which those decisions are put into effect. So Hans Kelsen called the, this metamorphoses. So this is the transformation of the idea of justice into law and freedom into government. So the metamorphosis of individual happiness into satisfaction of socially recognized needs. Needs recognized by the social authority, the law giver giver as needs worthy of being satisfied, such as the need to be fed, clothed, housed, and the like. So the whole idea of justice is transformed from a principle guaranteeing the individual happiness of all subjects into a social order protecting certain interests socially recognized as worthy of protection. So the satisfaction of socially recognized needs is very different from the original meaning of the term happiness, right, which is highly subjective. So we've got the idea of freedom, and it must change, must go through a metamorphosis to become a political principle. Genuine freedom, meaning freedom from any kind of social authority or government, is incompatible with any kind of political organization. So the idea of freedom must cease to mean absence of it, must mean a special form of government, government exercised by the majority, if necessary, against the minority of the governed. So the freedom of anarchy turns into the self-determination of democracy. Democracy is a concept that is metamorphosed by turning it into specific procedures within a democratic legal order. These procedures are democratic, that they result from choices made according to pre-existing procedures, and they are validated by the people. So Notions like justice and freedom and the people are transformed when they are turned into procedural facts. So the will of the people is a fiction, according to Max Weber. Fictions can be politically and even theoretically useful, but they are still fictions. Political philosophy traffics in abstractions. Political theory, however, needs to deal with the transformed versions, these abstractions into administrative fact, transformed versions of policy ideas, and the means of their transformation, the means of the political order itself, which is made up of procedures, sanctions, delegated, and discretionary powers. So the idea of democracy in practice means that which is produced and enacted involving the participation of citizens through legal procedures. But this is a radical departure from what passes as democratic theory and rule of law thinking today. Since the 18th century, there have been attempts to go beyond a spare definition of democracy in terms of democratic procedures to identify real democracy as something bigger, more fundamental they claim that the concept of democracy itself implies various policies that would make democracy effective right a given political practice or policy is a necessary condition for genuine democracy or law so i was talking to an academic about these lofty topics and i'll share with that that with you soon but uh, yesterday i i made a factual mistake i talked about how, how there weren't uh, any important Catholic physicists in the Manhattan Project. And uh, a friend pointed out, not necessarily on the Manhattan Project, but not necessarily observing Catholics, but there was Marie Curie, Enrico Fermi, Owen Schrodinger, Wolfgang Pauli, and Paul Dirac, all leading physicists and winners of the Nobel Prize who came from Catholic backgrounds. My friend it's one of the problems with being Jewish is that it is easy to buy into Jewish centrism regarding Western civilization, even though Jews played little part in the development of what we consider Western civilization, that uh, most Jewish contributions did not begin until the 19th century. So you'll often hear in Jewish life that if any society or government becomes anti-Jewish, it is quickly destroyed. Well, such arguments forget about the spanish empire which expelled its Jews in 1492 and became perhaps the greatest empire in the history of the world so despite defeats by the dutch rebelling against catholicism despite the loss of ships in connection with the spanish armada of 1588 vis-a-vis england spain remained immensely powerful into the beginning of the 19th century controlled the americas except for the united states canada and brazil as well as the philippines controlled the philippines macau and asia the colonies in north africa And uh, it extracted large amounts of gold and silver from its colonies. The Jews were leading physicists. Niels Bohr of Denmark may have been half-Jewish, quarter-Jewish. Werner Heisenberg of Germany was a Lutheran. Jews are a small minority in the world. They play an outsized role in certain professions in finance. So I was going off a book called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. And he talked about a 1932 study, physicists. And he wrote, the group studied like the American physics community then, meaning 1932, was predominantly Protestant in origin with a disproportionate minority of Jews and no Catholics. Okay, I was talking to talking to an academic on matters of democracy and autonomy, social trust. So I asked him, who would you say are the biggest forces in America to reduce moral autonomy and to strengthen social cohesion, social trust, social capital, and a shared sense of purpose? And he said, it's the desire of the state to replace de Tocquevillean intermediate orders, such as voluntary groups with state provision, when I was a kid, there was an active little league with its own park with amenities run by mums and dads, all voluntary, all supported by the community, and the city came in, replaced it with a parks service version that they controlled and subsidized. So this is a paradigm for the transformation that has taken place. The earlier version relied on rust and built trust. The later version was a bribe to subordinate oneself to bureaucracy. What about organized religion as a force for reduced moral autonomy and more tradition? Well, yes, but it's also a source for resistance to state power and a substitute for state charity. So the key to voluntary groups is that they are voluntary. You can join the Elks or the Baptists or not. This provides both autonomy and it forces people to exercise it. So I was just talking to a friend the other day and he told me in all seriousness, he regarded Donald Trump as a threat to democracy. So is is Trump a particularly dangerous threat to democracy? And my academic philosopher friend said, I don't get the times. Who decides what constitutes democracy, a progressive theorist or the people? I say the people. So the threat is to their idea of democracy, not whatever it is that people want legally expressed by voting that they want. And they like to say our democracy, meaning the democracy they think they own, not the democracy of the people. So There's a long history of this kind of thinking, in which democracy means democratic institutions as distinct from what people vote for, or equality, which people didn't vote for. So these ideals are literally anti-democratic. So Carl Friedrich is the source of much of this thinking in the United States. He was a friend of Carl Schmitt, who had an institutional view of the law, not a positivist one, which would be democratic in the sense that the law would be what people voted for. Uh, This is uh, Stephen Turner against democratic theory, uh,
10: which was against uh, not uh, either of these guys, but another very obscure German, um, which he used as a sort of a living boy. he wasn't really a straw man. It was a sort of a well-stuffed man. Uh, And uh, um, his line as a legal positivist was, look, uh, democracy is the rule of the people. We we all can agree on that. Uh, But the rule of the people has to be ruled through legal procedures. There's no other kind of rule of the people. And uh, therefore, democracy is nothing more or less than the legal procedures which allow people to vote. Those vary, uh, but there's no essence to it. It's just a kind of of, uh, procedure. And his point was, it's undemocratic to appeal, and he's quite explicit about this, to appeal to such things as the will of the people apart from the procedures of expressing it. There's just no such thing. This was Weber's view as well. He said, uh, for me, uh, the will of the people is a myth. Okay, so, uh, we have a real conflict here between uh, ideas of democracy, which is supposed to be the real thing, and the people, uh, what what actual democracy uh, produces. Now, an aspect of this uh, problem is, uh, uh, pretty soon we're gonna see how this all drives uh, drives us into the wall, but uh, uh, part of the problem has to do not so much with democracy, but with liberalism. Um, And this is a, uh, a tradition that Dahl certainly contributed to, I'm gonna call it the Problems of Liberalism tradition, And it's basically there are a whole series of issues that are paradoxes within liberalism, where if you take uh, liberal principles to one extreme or another, they begin to defeat themselves and uh, become unworkable. Uh, Voltaire uh, coined the phrase, no freedom for the enemies of freedom, and I think most of them are sort of variations on that. The liberal state has to defend itself. So it can't be freedom for the enemies of a liberal state. You've gotta have something in addition to uh, freedom for everybody. A similar one is, involves secrecy. The liberal state is supposed to be based on free discussion That's the whole point of liberalism. Uh, but it needs secrecy to protect itself. So it can't have free discussion about everything. Um, and uh, um, you, you can go on and, and deal with this in terms of cases like hate speech and say, well, this undermines rational persuasion, needs to be regulated in order to have rational discussion, and uh, therefore it can't be free. Now, liberalism is just full of these uh, uh, problems. and um, um, Yeah. So... But there's sort of a more basic uh, problem with democracy itself. It has to do with the idea of forms of state. So this is theory that I'll go back to. Uh, in order for there to be the rule of the people and them to actually rule, it has to rely on some sort of sovereignty because sovereignty is rule, but equivalent to rule. So sovereignty and democracy are inseparable with contradictory partners. Efficacy depends on sovereignty uh, and uh, if there wasn't sovereignty, it would be uh, defeated and the people wouldn't uh,
0: Okay. On on a happier note, the the guy who shot J- President Reagan is out with an original song. This is John Hickley Majesty of Love. John Hinckley on the assembly. has got 26,000 subscribers and he's going to be performing. So Ronald Reagan's would be assassin 66 will play a sold out Brooklyn concert in July, 40 years after attempting to take the president's life. Tickets sold out on April 12. Hinckley has tweeted. He's very excited after spending 35 years in a psychiatric ward. Hinckley has amassed 800,000 views on his YouTube channel where he posts original songs and covers in on March 30th, 1981, Hinckley shot then President Reagan, two of his staffers, and a policeman to impress actress Jodie Foster. 2020, a judge allowed him to display and to perform his music. So he's got he's got a concert coming up in Brooklyn, and he's got his own YouTube channel. Bye bye.